Her courage was forged out of fire. Her power, a gift of the gods. Her destiny, to become a glorious new hero. Red Sonia. Only one man on Earth is man enough to win her. Don't be a fool. Try it. To love her. To join her great adventure. Arnold Schwarzenegger is Lord Kalidor. Kill them. Two legends unite to destroy the Earth's greatest evil. God, Majesty, what you want? The world, Eichel! We must find a way in. Your Highness learns first. I make it a rule never to take a woman unless she can beat me in a fair fight. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Why not? Brigitte Nielsen. A warrior. A woman. A magnificent new legend. Welcome back to the Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and returning after far too long an absence is uh, Mr. Court Psyops. How are you doing, sir? <laughs> Please, Mr. Court Psyops is my father. Just call me Court. <laughs> Someone says Mr. Psyops, and you're looking around or ducking, waiting for somebody to slap you in the back of the head. Is that it? <laughs> well, you don't know how true that is. I even got rage issues compared to getting that Gibbs slap going on. <laughs> My co-host Matt found that out the hard way. Well, well, we, we, we are talking over over the internet, so thank goodness I can't be privy to your violence in person. <laughs> Not so much violence as uh, just <laughs> verbal accosting at the likes of which most are not prepared. <laughs> well, the internet's not going to save me from that. Nevertheless. No, no not at all. <laughs> What we have here today is uh, what I used to call, and I, I want to I pick your brain about this. The reason we're talking about the movie Red Sonja from 1985 today is that both of us have a particular affection for this film that most people would consider to be out of proportion to its qualities. And I think that both of us are going to, to, uh, to refute that in a large measure, but at the same time, I think that uh, there are two things that need to be addressed right up front. One, I used to uh, subscribe to the idea of there being there being the, the kinds of things that one would refer to as guilty pleasures. For the past four or five years, I've been kind of moving away from the concept of the guilty pleasure and moving toward more of an idea of, you know, I enjoy it and I'm not guilty about it. Um, just because someone else's opinion of a piece of art or a film or a piece of music is contrary to mine and just because the majority of people hold a contrary opinion to mine does not mean that I'm going to feel guilty about enjoying the holy living shit out of it. And Red Sonja 
does now finally fall into that category. If you'd asked me a decade ago, I would have I would have said yes, I I do enjoy watching that film, and I would have called it a guilty pleasure. I don't anymore. How do you feel about the concept of the guilty pleasure? I've been kind of going down a similar path myself where, I mean, as long as you're finding entertainment in it and there's something that you can value to the film, then yeah, there's no reason to call it a guilty pleasure unless it's like just something that's absolutely most (laughs) like vile, mean-spirited, awful kind of movie. Like if if you really get off and really enjoy watching I Spit on Your Grave, then I'm going to be like, man, that's kind of a guilty pleasure. Because you should feel guilty about finding that enjoyable because it's hard watch. You know, maybe something along those lines where you should feel a little bad about liking something that makes you feel terrible inside. Because you, you need to yeah. examine yourself for that. No, I'm not talking like liking it because it's a powerful film. I'm talking like enjoying it more than you probably should <laughs> in that, that aspect. But, but, but something like this, like something like Red Sonia, which is relatively harmless, although it does have a bit of a message that through the lens of today's eyes, you realize is a bit harmful and uh, pushing towards the way that uh, Sonia's sexuality was treated in the film. It, it's kind of, yeah, it, it, it fits that just a little bit, but um, luckily the studio canal cut at the very start of the 4k disc literally just says, look, uh, this was a viewpoint of this time frame and, we, we aren't going to try and change that, and this is wrong. So once you acknowledge that, then sure. But just because maybe the film is viewed as not as well-made or kind of hokey or low-budget, no, you should never feel bad about liking a film for that. You know, oh, I, just, I completely agree, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a strange term for me now because I would never say Octoman is a guilty pleasure. I would say Octoman is a stupid-as-fuck movie that I really enjoy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, it's turned to someone. Would you like to see a really, really poorly done remake of Creature from the Black Lagoon? Okay, well, come on. <laughs> Here we go. This is this is what we're going to do. Right, but like, there's some stuff to enjoy in that because there's some shots where oh, the yeah. cinematographer got it right. There's some mm-hmm. sh- there's some shots where the suit actually works pretty well and is really creepy to see, particularly when he's attacking the camper for the hundredth time. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Well, not only that, there's a, I, I take a, a strange, perverse joy out of watching films that are unacknowledged remakes of, of previous movies and spotting where they essentially just copied the, the other film. I, I get a real joy out of that. You know, not, non-acknowledged remakes is, is uh, the, uh, to my mind, there's a book in that. And uh, the... Uh, I'm not the one going to write it. I'm telling you now. <laughs> the, the, the unacknowledged remakes are always a really entertaining thing for me because if you figure it out while you're watching the movie, you know, for the first time, it's like, wow, they didn't hide it very well. But if you have to think about it later on and come up with it, it's like, hey, that was pretty clever. Let me watch that again. And then they got you. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's interesting. But I think relatively towards the whole quality of a film there's also a sliding scale of what you'll accept as passable you know what i mean like yeah. if the if the che- if, if the sets look kind of cheap if the costumes are kind of cheaply made and if everything is obviously so ultra low budget you would just kind of feel like wow this is just such a low budget production and man i can't find anything you know really to glom out of this at all you know like Iron Master level of filmmaking for fantasy or Ator <laughs> hey, the Fighting hey, Eagle. I, 
I would I would argue I find much joy in those psychotic films as well. Right. Right, but but that's the that's the kind of thing where I would be like if someone were to be looking at a fantasy film and really bag on how cheaply it's made mm-hmm. and we're talking like that level of filmmaking cuz that's you know from around the same studio areas of shot in Italy and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um those those films are obviously wearing their low budgets on their sleeve. And I can see where some folks would be bagging on that one more. Whereas in the fantasy genre, right, Red Sonia still sits at the or higher budgets and more well made of the uh, particularly in the eighties, because we had a bunch of these kinds of films where people were trying to make after Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. And this one went and said, Hey, why don't we hire like a fourth to half the cast of Conan the Barbarian and see if we can do this again. Well, not only that, I mean, this thing had a budget of 18 million nearly. And so, and and I would argue that you see that budget on the screen. I agree. uh, And and that's one of the joys of it. But before we get to get to that, what uh, I'm I'm always curious about this kind of thing when we're talking about a, a beloved film from decades past, what is your history with this film? Well, I saw this on the Beastmaster station quite frequently in between breaks of showing the Beastmaster. <laughs> this was a staple of HBO, I take it. Well, well, that's Hey uh, Beastmaster's On. So, yep. And I believe that it was on Hey Beastmaster's On in between episodes or, or <laughs> viewings of Beastmaster as well. But it also played TBS like a ton when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure exactly at what age that I had caught this, but it was like... This one and Conan the Destroyer were on all the time on cable when I was a kid. Hmm. Um, Conan, Conan the Barbarian obviously wasn't going to be something that I'd be able to watch, although there were edited versions of that that also were on all the time when I was a kid. And I honestly thought that Red Sonia was a continuation of Conan the Barbarian and that Conan the Destroyer was like the third in the series when I was a kid. I had hmm. no clue. Even though they called him something different, I was like, well, this is just his name here. You know what I mean? Like, this is just his name to those people. He has a bunch oh, of different okay. names, you know, or this is how he's known. I, I didn't freaking know. And also, I didn't pay attention to names that well, even when I was a kid, because anybody who listens to my show knows that I just rename characters whatever I think their name should be and don't pay attention <laughs> sometimes. But, you know, that's kind of what, what it was. And of the three of them, this was the one that I had the most fun with. And I also found that this is probably where my love of strong extremely violent women comes from <laughs> oh my this this is uh this is something we should maybe edit out because this tells us a whole lot about your marriage court <laughs> <laughs> no no she she knows, <laughs> she, those, she knows. Scar, those scars are real is what you're saying okay <laughs> no not violent towards me but you know <laughs> that's because i treat her right <laughs> at least that's what at least that's what i'm gonna say publicly yes mistress yes uh <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, I'm I'm here voluntarily for all of the violence. So let's not put any blame on her shoulders here. Hey, no kink shaming here. Uh, (laughs) Nevertheless, uh, I, being older than you, saw this movie in the theater when it came out sometime in the month of July. uh, uh, As I remember, a matinee screening there uh, in uh, some theater in Chattanooga, which was where I could drive to to see films. And... um, I can remember uh, I had I had my tag along little brother with me, uh, you know, being a, being a, a teenager with the ability to drive a car now, thank God. Uh, yeah, I caught this in the theater on first run and uh, was 
more than happy with it then, although I was well aware, having seen the previous two uh, Conan, the previous two productions in this, this, you know, are we going to call it? A, it's not a trilogy. It's just a series of three films made by the same production people. But the uh, the previous Conan films, I'd seen them in in uh, in theater as well, and uh, uh, I considered this to be uh, better at the time, especially considered this to be better than Conan the Destroyer, which had which had rung hollow as a, a severe disappointment in its in its uh, less than R rating after the R rated Conan, and. Uh, so this felt like a step up, and that's kind of one of the things I want to talk about first, which is the um, the fact that there's they're they're very smart about their editing, but uh, although there are no <laughs> there are no you know uh, intestines dropping to the floor, there's a fair amount of blood in this film. They're just being smart about editing around it to keep from getting the R rating. The sword yeah. hits are very much like the old school uh, Japanese samurai films where there's a blood spark as the sword mm -hmm. goes across. Exactly. There's, there's a very few amount of wounds opening up, but they they just go right up to the boundary of the, of the hard R violence, and then they peel back just enough to get that, well, PG at the time, what is now PG-13, no, 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 right? It was, it was a PG-13 film. Oh, it was one. Okay. So yes, they, it was. So they were pushing or testing the boundaries of the PG-13 in this, and they do an excellent job. I absolutely agree. Yeah. And I want to go back to what you said about finding this to be a better film and of a much better quality than Conan the Destroyer. Absolutely. The reason this one in my head was always the second Conan film is because I was like, well, it's at least better than this one with that guy Wilt Chamberlain in it. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, don't get me wrong, I, I, I have been meaning for years to go back and rewatch as an older gentleman uh, Conan the Destroyer and kind of, you know, al allow myself to reevaluate it if, it, it and see what happens when I when I do that. I haven't done it yet. I've got oh, well, a... Uh, I, I have, and I can tell you that the order of quality is Conan, Red Sonja, <laughs> Conan the Destroyer. Oh, I see. That's just it. I have no doubt that it will remain that. <laughs> I just want to know, you know, because I haven't watched it in... Man, more than I want to say, probably more than twenty years at the very least. And so there's a part of me that just wants to revisit it because I do remember there being things in Conan the Destroyer that I was very happy to see realized on the big screen. And then there were uh, there were about you know for every one of those at least five things where I was just like, why the fuck did they do that? <laughs> um, yeah, the Wendy O. Williams demon with the horn in the middle of the head doesn't quite do it for me either. <laughs> but, but 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 I do remember there being some some monstrous stuff that goes on in the film that that was very effective. I was in, I remember being impressed that they that they took a good stab at recreating the Frank Frazetta uh, monster in the uh, mirrored room painting. Um, the uh, I remember uh, some of the uh, some of the action being pretty pretty inventive and interesting. It's hard for me to get upset with uh, some with uh, the the choice of villainous in that film. I think the the actress in question uh, is is quite wonderful. But nevertheless, we're not talking about Conan the Destroyer. Here. Now I'm going to have to go watch all three of them together now, just because we've been talking about it. And that's yeah. I think that's uh, what I'm going to do today. I'm going to watch. I'm going to even watch Red Sonja again probably as soon as we're done <laughs> recording. I'm going to go get some waffles and I'm just going to have a fantasy and swordplay day <laughs> at the movies in my house. 
Well, <laughs> there's there, there's very little wrong with that, in my opinion. But uh, yeah. another th- another thing about the editing, because it does appear, and I'm not, I'm not completely sure of this because I can't find any specific, uh, I can't find verification for this particular thought that runs through my head every time I watch the film. But I think that they seem to have shot this movie knowing that they were going to be skirting the edge of an R rating with the idea that they can't, you know, to shoot it in such a way that they can trim it back in the edit. And I think that they may have, um, I, I don't know what the, I don't know what the reason exactly for the choice, but I think that one of the things they realized probably in the edit long after filming that they were going to have to trim back or change a little bit was the opening of the film. Now, uh, it's not hard to figure out from any particular viewing, even from your first viewing about what they probably did to, uh, to, to, keep the movie from gaining an R rating because of uh, a rape sequence. Uh, But uh, what they've done is they've chosen to start the film with the burning house of Sonya's family uh, after the raid that kills her family and is supposed to leave her dead. But what uh, what doing that means is what we get little little bits of flashback as this goddess character narrates over the top of the first few minutes of the movie. And uh, obviously they shot all of that. They shot that to be the opening, you know, bucolic introduction to the to the happy family, giving us a little and, you know, also probably dropping the information in there about the uh, the absent older sister who is away you know, guarding the talisman along with all these other women. And uh, then the raid occurs, the uh, the uh, horrible murders, all the things that are incurred there. And I was happy to learn, although I, I, there, there apparently was no novelization of this, there was a Marvel Comics two-issue adaptation of the film. And uh, I, of course, uh, you know, read those. And made sure of this, and it's like, yep, that's definitely the script that they were working off of when they did the comic book adaptation, because that is how the comic book adaptation starts. We have the whole opening sequence with the family. So, uh, not hard to figure out that uh, in comics, it's very easy to hide the uh, rape, but in film, what, what they managed to do is cut carefully around it tell you what's going on, give you just a couple of seconds flash of what's going on, a little dialogue to, 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 to push the Im- image into your head and then move past it so that they can tell the MPAA, what rape? What are you talking about? Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, but it also is cut around in such a way to where it removes the graphic and more brutal aspect of it. And yeah. there are some films that have... A sexual assault like that in them that basically just shows the aftermath of it or in this case you see her screaming and some men on top of her sort of but it just it cuts just enough to where you get the idea of it but it also doesn't leave the overall horrific feeling that you get from actually sitting down and viewing it doesn't go like full last house on the left or or uh uh, like I mentioned earlier, off <laughs> off mic, or no, no, on, on mic, I spit on your grave, you know, which is yeah. a hard film to enjoy. It doesn't go quite that far, but it's just enough to where you know that that is what happened, but this is the aftermath whenever some kind of a spirit is calling to her to tell her that she is going to be on a vengeance quest from now on and mm-hmm. given the strength to do what she needs to do to get her revenge. And if you if you aren't into fantasy movies 
this intro right off the bat where this spirit is talking to her and then imbues her with power is going to probably let you know the kind of movie you're about to get yourself involved with. Yeah, and you're either on board with the idea or you're not. And, you know, it's from, from there from there on, hopefully you're you're along for the ride for the next 90 minutes, but, you know, who knows, people can be weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit. Let's before we before we start going through the story of the film, let's talk a bit about the um, people behind the camera who are of severe importance to this. First of all, uh, let's talk screenplay. As far as I can tell, of course, the original idea here is derived from uh, uh, from the Marvel Comics version of this character. Because although it, it, it can be argued and and is often said that uh, Red Sonja was a character created by Robert E. Howard, that is technically true, but not completely accurate. Because the character that Robert E. Howard created was uh, called Red Sonja of Rogatino. And uh, that is uh, all fine and lovely, except that that character was never featured or situated in the Hyborian Age, the the age in which the you know the fictional age in which the Conan the Barbarian stories take place. Uh, so what happened was uh, Roy Thomas and Barry Windsor Smith, the artist Barry Windsor Smith, used that character as a basis for a female uh, adventurer. And uh, took her from the story Shadow of the Vulture and created a different character with the same name and put her into Conan the Barbarian uh, back in 1973. And uh, from such small acorns do mighty trees grow. (laughs) Because uh, you can walk into a comic book store right now and buy God knows how many Red Sonja comic books uh, that have been published in the past 20 years. Because... My goodness, has she become an evergreen character. Not that I'm complaining about it, although I will admit that I have read very few of the uh, recent uh, Red Sonja comic books. I am a huge fan of what Marvel did with the character back in the 70s and 80s. Um, special, a special fan of the artwork of the artist most associated with the Marvel run of Red Sonja, a man named Frank Thorne. His artwork on those comics is just amazing. There's just nothing quite like it. And uh, luckily, they have been reprinted repeatedly. So if you have any curiosity about uh, the the origins of the character that you're seeing in this film, I would recommend starting with those because they are, they're beautiful and they're, there's kind of a, a strange purity about the the barbarian adventures although red sonia i would not put in the barbarian category it's just it's really interesting stuff really really beautifully drawn uh and i have to say that the beautiful artwork is something that does continue through the the recent uh comic books made over the past man i want to call it almost 20 years i mean i don't think that there's been a year that there hasn't been some Red Sonja comics published since about 2005. So what you're talking about there is a character who seems to be, um, well, you know, eternal. And it's not something that you would have thought if you'd ever paid attention to that character in the in the 80s, I think, from the comic books. Because it's... it's um, there's this strange thing, and court. This is something I, I, I kind of don't want to jump into this right now, but I kind of feel like it's, 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 it's organically growing out of this. Here's the thing: there is this bizarre thing in entertainment thought that seems to indicate that for some reason, 
there are people in control of the creative elements, or at least the money, in not just in Hollywood, but also in, in comic books and other things, who think that boys won't read stories where the main character is a female. And well, geez, that's just a bunch of horseshit. It, it is complete horseshit, and I have never understood it. When I was when I was a teenager and would encounter this thinking, my thought was: so you're getting you're, you're telling me that I would be getting a cool ass action action filled comic book with a hot chick on every page that I get to stare at. You know, I'm sorry, but yeah, sign me the fuck up. But, <laughs> she's a she's a strong woman who can lift me up and protect me and take care of me and make me a kept man, and I'm supposed to not like that idea? <laughs> she will instill lust in me and fight off assholes at the same time? I mean, what the hell? She, she will fight for my honor and then bed me and take me like the weakling that I am, and I'm supposed to not enjoy that? <laughs> Oh, God, I'm so close to kink shaming. But nevertheless. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't you shouldn't do that. If anything, my show has taught you, you should not kink shame. <laughs> but I will, I will just add that I think the inventiveness that uh, Dynamite Entertainment, the people who've been publishing uh, Red Sonja comics for uh, years and years now, the inventiveness that they show with the character is just astonishing. I have, I have uh, over the years, I've read a few... Red Sonja comics that they've published just out of incredible curiosity. There's sometimes sometimes you see something staring at you from the comic rack, and there's just no way you can stop yourself. Uh, uh, the the Red Sonja Tarzan combination uh, miniseries what was was something that I really thoroughly enjoyed because I'm of course also a Tarzan fan. But to be blunt, the Red Sonja versus Mars Attacks <laughs> comic book miniseries. <laughs> Is, is something that, you know, I'm so glad it exists. <laughs> On paper, someone had to think, you know, there's really no way, and someone else probably just screamed at them over a phone line, yes, it fucking will work. <laughs> Don't you say it won't. Um, Only in comic books, though, because if you tried to make that into a movie, it would fail miserably. <laughs> oh, it would fail miserably and cost obscene amounts of money. So there's right. since, yeah, exactly. So we're not gonna we're we're not gonna ever see that visualized. Although I can imagine an animated version. Now I need to stop thinking about that. Anyway, the my uh, wallet is just angry at you that you told me that there are this many different iterations of her in comic books now. Oh, dude, Vampirella and Red Sonja team ups. <laughs> Seriously, stop! I'm, I only have so much money left. <laughs> They did a Red Sonja Halloween special in 2019. Come on, man. Sorry. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> There's just dollar bills flashing by the screen right now as people are listening. I'm like, oh, man, I'm so broke. But back to where I started, which was there was a, a comic book adaptation Marvel did. They did it in uh, a, as a two-issue uh, publication, and then they republished it as a, uh, a kind of graphic novel as well uh, after the fact. And uh, I, I will say that I don't think the art is particularly fantastic. Uh, it's 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 serviceable, and that's about as good as it gets. But it does give some insight into some things that they that they um, were going to include in the movie, and and for whatever reason decided not to. And I'll get to another very telling element that was missing from a from a scene that uh, I'm I'm going to uh, I'm going to lay at the feet of budgetary constraints here uh, later on, but. Uh, here recently, 
the reason you and I are talking about this film in particular is that it has come out on Blu-ray in Britain. That's right, we are still not getting it on Blu-ray here in the States because the United States is a very silly place. Not just <laughs> Blu-ray, but a Steelbook Edition 4K UHD Blu-ray. Yep, indeed. And uh, let's just say that... <clears throat> I'm, it, it, it looks gorgeous. It, I'm not sure if the fact that we're you know finally seeing it in such incredible high resolution as we can see it now has has made me feel the way I feel now about the film. Uh, like I say, I've never hated it. But now I have an absolute unabiding love for it, and I'm willing to defend it publicly as we are currently doing. And um, the this Blu-ray, I, I will admit that I had hoped for there to be more extras. Um, I could have done with uh, a nice commentary track on the film and its production because, boy, are there tales to tell. And uh, I could have done with, uh, so, 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 you know, so, some some feature pieces that, that focus specifically on the film. Don't get me wrong, the feature-length documentary about the... Uh, the uh, the uh, artist who is uh, so so the Italian artist who's uh, just iconic and did the uh, the poster art for not just this film but hundreds of others. That's a, that's a great documentary. Don't get me wrong. Glad it's there. But yeah. um, the uh, I, I was hoping for more uh, direct you know more extras directly related to the film itself. But the um, the joys of this are, are the film itself, of course, and it is a beauty to see this in in high definition. Man, it, it it's uh, it's it's so nice. And it, it here's what's so weird is that I had forgotten just how this being a, a film that was produced in 1985, 1984, 1985. Uh, I have I had forgotten just how much amazing old school special effects were involved in the making of this thing, including some of the most gorgeous matte paintings of the decade. The foreground this, miniatures in this film are mm, unparalleled in a lot of other movies of its kind, for sure. It's it, like like I say when we talk about the budget of it. It's not a high budget film, but it's also not a low budget film. You know, they had they had uh, almost 18 million to make this thing, and I got to be honest, I think you see just all just so much of the budget on the screen. It's it's oh, it's it's kind of amazing. Uh, let's let's talk about the script. The person who uh, had the <laughs> had the uh, unenviable task of turning a, a comic book character into a screenplay is a, a writer by the name of Clive Exton. Now, Clive Exton, uh, his real name was Clive Montague Brooks. Uh, he's a, he was a British screenwriter who uh, used Exton as a pen name uh, for, for, for various reasons. But the thing is, if you look at his long list of credits, one of the things you'll realize is that he's much more well-known for things that I enjoy that have absolutely nothing to do with this kind of film. Uh, he's, he's primarily known for having written almost all of Jeeves and Worcester, or done the adaptations of them, nevertheless. Also, lots of episodes of the uh, the original uh, television uh, series for uh, Perot and Rosemary and Time. So, if you look at that, you might see why someone would tap him. Which is, oh, okay, so he's really good at adapting work, you know, you know, written work to the screen. Um, good, good, cho good choice. Makes sense. Um, he, he, he wrote uh, the Stigma episode from 77 for uh, the Ghost Stories for Christmas for the BBC. 
um, which is, of course, yet another adaptation. And he wrote the 1979 adaptation of M.R. James's Casting the Ruins. And so those are, those are great. Now, he said, this particular writer, Mr. Exton, said that the only feature film that he ever wrote that really pleased him was Ten Rillington Place, the uh, serial killer film directed by Richard Attenborough. So uh, when you look at his, his credits, the, the, the stuff that I enjoy from his, from his long list of credits are things that, um, well, let's, let's, let's talk about where this goes. Um, they're things that most people don't like, <laughs> much like Red Sonja. Uh, he, <laughs> he co-wrote The Awakening, which is a film that I now have a lot of love for because I've been able to rewatch it now that it's available on Blu-ray. And I don't, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I can understand why people who don't have a mummy fetish would uh, not be particularly <laughs> thrilled with The Awakening from 1980. <clears throat> but he co-wrote that. Once again, yet another adaptation. That's an adaptation of a Bram Stoker novel. And apparently he had a huge hand in the 1984 version of The Bounty with uh, Anthony Hopkins, which I think is also an excellent adaptation. So the reason he's one of the people tapped to write the screenplay is he's good at adapting these kinds. You know, uh, he's, a, he's, good at a, he's a good adapter in general. So fine choice. But you'll notice there's another name attached to the screenplay. And this is someone who was brought in uh, after after his uh, his pass on the screenplay to kind of punch it up and to do some things to it. And his name is George McDonald Frazier, who is a writer who I have had a lot of time with over the years. Have you ever read the Flashman novels? No, I have not. Oh God, let me highly recommend the Flashman novels. I have only read the first nine of 12, uh, but I have read those nine with a gigantic smile on my face. The Flashman novels are completely hysterical. They are stringently accurate historical novels uh, taking place from the mid-1800s up through the early 1900s following a complete scumbag and cad, Sir Harry Flashman, as we see him cower, cringe, steal, and connive his way through everything that happens with the British Army and Britain in general during that period of years. He is without a doubt one of the most hilarious scumbag characters that you have ever seen. Uh, let's just put it this way. Uh, this, this man was involved in the Charge of the Light Brigade. Not that he wanted to be. He was just suffering from dysentery and could not get off the fucking horse before the charge started. It's hilarious. The, the, the Flashman novels are a joy. Now, if that's all he'd ever done, it'd be great. But George MacDonald Frazier also wrote the screenplays for The Three and the Four Musketeers from 1973 and 1974. Uh, if you're unaware, that is that, that's really one giant movie <laughs> because they were filmed at the same time uh, and the producer's fucked over the actors by only trying to only pay for, pay for them for one movie. Uh, he wrote those. They're brilliant. They're absolutely amazing. And of course, they might be the best adaptations of the three Musketeers as well. Oh, I completely concur. I think the, the three and the four Musketeers taken together, or even if you just watch the first one, it wouldn't matter because they're just brilliant, brilliant films. Incredible. And, and if you, if you notice the, the, the style of humor within those movies, which never undercuts the seriousness of the things that are going on. 
Uh, that is also something that he's famous for and comes straight out of those Flashman novels. Uh, they were they, they did, in 1975, also adapt one of his novels. He did it himself, Royal Flash, uh, which was a damned good version of that story. Uh, unfortunately, the film did not do nearly as well as they had hoped, even though it had the perfect scumbag playing... Uh, the, the the scumbag character, which is Malcolm McDowell. He's a blast. If you've never seen Royal Flash, people, allow me to point you toward that. It also stars Oliver Reed, Alan Bates. Some people have argued that Alan Bates would have been a better choice for uh, for, Flat, for for Flashman, but I, I don't know. But uh, let me let me recommend that movie to people. But George McDonald Fraser was brought in to kind of punch this thing up in certain ways. And I do not know what the differences would have been if they'd gone with just whatever Clive Exton produced. But nevertheless, him having a hand in this probably is the reason why there's a couple of sprigs of humor scattered in there that uh, are, uh, shall we say, actually hit their marks in a beautiful way. Now, this is the big one. This is the person behind the, screen, behind the scenes that, uh, boy, is there a lot to talk about, and I'm going to have to stop myself from going too far. How familiar are you with Richard Fleischer? Other than this film, not very. Wow, yeah. really? Yeah, I know. Oh, man, even you've got some even someone who is even even someone who has spent his entire life renting movies and or getting a hold of movies and watching movies can have gaps like that, my oh, man. I it does happen. Well, let's talk about those gaps. First of all, Mandingo. No, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Back. Hold on. Let me back off. Not Mandingo. Stop. Stop. Sorry. Uh, Mandingo is a film that you probably want to see one day, but you know that warning that's at the beginning of this film on the Blu-ray. Yeah, it would be much worse for a Mandingo, yes. Imagine that as a long text crawl, including a full apology from everyone who made it. We're very sorry about this. We're very, very sorry sorry this exists. We're sorry this film exists, but it does. Here it is. No, no, no. Richard Fleischer is the director of Red Sonja, and he directed 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 54, The Vikings, one of my favorite adventure films from 1958, Fantastic Voyage in 1966, he even directed the musical Dr. Doolittle. Don't recommend that one. That's not where we're going. Calm down. Uh, <laughs> Tora, Tora, Tora in 1977. He was actually the co-director of that. That was a huge production. The Amazing Soylent Green from 73. The Okay, so I have seen his films. I just was not aware of oh, him okay, as the okay. thread through them. Yes. Well, you're man. starting. I'm starting to get it now. Okay, yeah. Uh, one of the best of the uh, film noir films from the '50s, *The Narrow Margin*, which is a really tight little movie. Good, good film. He did the Boston Strangler in 1968. Uh, the the, uh, the the Prince and the Pauper uh, in 1977, uh, and then by the '80s, he's ancient as the hills and is still making movies and gets rooked into working for producer Dino De Laurentiis. Which is, of course, part of the, uh, which is how he ends up doing Red Sonja, and he also directed Conan the Destroyer. Hey, not everyone can be a, not everyone can be a success, um, but also, before he also for Dino De Laurentiis did, and I know this will sound controversial to some people, but he did Amityville 3D, which is a movie I actually think is pretty damn good. It's a sequel that has no right to be as good as it actually is, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm a, I'm a weird one on the Amityville films. I've never thought that much of the original film, and I get a perverse joy out of the, the Italian-made sequel, Amityville 2. And then 
I almost feel like if Amityville 3D had been the first film, I would just love this series. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so Richard Fleischer, by the time he comes to direct this film, is an old hand. And the fact that he made things like The Vikings tells you that he's someone who knows how to create these kinds of stories. He knows how to put them up on the big screen and make life wonderful. Uh, so what we get here is a, a veteran filmmaker who's worked with this producer before, knows how to handle him, and is also being afforded a unique opportunity. And what was that opportunity? Well, $18 million, a trip to Italy, and a newly reopened film studio that, um, that Mr. De Laurentiis had had to close down a few years before. And this movie gets to use every freaking soundstage in this studio. And boy, does it show. Um, yeah. I'm going to assume that because you came to this film in your youth on television, that not many, if any, of those screenings were widescreen. No, actually, the very first widescreen viewing I ever got of it was a DVD that I bought used at like a uh, disco round or, or whatever type of store that was like that uh, mm -hmm. on DVD. And that was when I had my 1080i projector that, you know, was basically just hooked up to a DVD player. So it was 480p. And I got to really kind of enjoy the vistas, the sets, all the things that I love about the film a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, previously, it was like that pan and scan version that you would watch on 4x3. Yeah. And so much of what makes this movie amazing is just not there in those versions. And I can see why people that are framing their assessment of the film around that and just seeing it on TV would feel like it's cheap, it's cornball, it's just not quite worth it. But when you get the scope of the entirety of the shots like you do with the DVD version and then now... In 4K Ultra HD, oh my god, with HDR no less. I mean, the depth of field of just some of the wide vistas of them riding horses, it was just simply breathtaking. If you were wondering whether or not it's worth your money to get it in 4K, if you're only just casually a fan of Red Sonja, the answer to the question is yes. It is a completely different film when you get to see it in that form. You get to see so much more of what they put and, and created and so much more detail of the sets. And I was worried. I was concerned that some of the fake-looking armor or the things that I thought were kind of plasticky and cheap would look even worse. But it's actually kind of the opposite. It tricks your eye yes. so much more when you have to take it all in that you don't even notice that Queen Gedron's fucking crown is absolutely 100% spray-painted plastic. <laughs> like, I didn't even pay that much attention to it because I was too busy marveling at the stonework that they had made yeah. that looked so much more like stone. And they took the time to age and throw different colored sand on at some points or had moss growing on. And yeah. just the production design alone just completely overshadowed any of the things that I may have noticed before that I would have had a complaint with, you know, in watching it in before by three. It's mesmerizing. The stuff that they were actually able to do in the two, three, five, one scope of it on a really big screen. Cause I watched this in my, my theater room and my projections, my projection screen in, in 4k. So I got 120 inches diagonal of screen that this thing filled out, you know, through that, that two, three, five aspect ratio. And I was just absolutely enthralled with it watching it last night. 
this this sounds like you're you're just waving your dick around now. So uh, we're going to be well. <laughs> no, okay. The reason the reason that I always bring up the size of the screen is because when it comes to 4K and when it comes to 4K with HDR, the bigger the screen, the more the detail is available for you to see, and the more that you actually are able to tell. You need to be like 42 inch TV screen or projection screen or above and like a certain distance away. And that screen that I built, I am way too fucking close to it in my home theater to the point where I get, sometimes I get a little bit of vertigo depending upon what's happening on the screen because it's really disorienting because it's just too much, right? And it just so happened that I was able to get this because the pandemic was happening. There was an overstock of this type of projector, and then the screen no, was actually no one was cheap. no one was paying attention. You were able to take it out the side door. Yeah, I know. No, no, <laughs> no. I bought it on an overstock website. It's not quite that bad. Uh, the, and then the screen was just like it's meant to be outdoors, but uh, it's vinyl. It's something my cats won't try to claw, so I'm using that. You know, and I I, I put the thing together and just kind of did it. But the reason that I'm mentioning the the size that's important is. The bigger that screen gets and the right viewing distance that you are away from it, the more detail that you're going to be able to see. So that's where the 4K Ultra HD really comes into play is bigger screens. Most theaters nowadays are at least 4K with HDR Mm -hmm. that they're projecting for, for modern releases. And some are even like six or eight or what have you. But like all the local theaters that I have here, they're about 4K as well. So this is as close to the experience that you got when you got to see it in 35 millimeter as a teenager in the 80s that I had watching it. And this is the first time that I had ever gotten to see what it would have actually looked like to watch it in theaters. And I can see where it would immediately just take your breath away and just be this overwhelming experience where the film sticks with you for the rest of your life. No matter how cornball you may have thought some of the things were that were in it, the overall enjoyment and the overall like the production design and everything that you get to see it's going to rope you in and it's going to make you a fan if you get to see it in that context well if you're inclined to enjoy this kind of film but there, well, that's, yeah, that's, a, that's, a big, that's a big caveat yeah, yeah if you're if you just don't like fantasy or if you just hate redheads with a mullet that you know are wielding <laughs> swords around then yeah you're just not going to enjoy red sonia but if you have the predilection to like fantasy films and you have the predilection to like strong women with redhead mullets, then yeah, you're gonna go fucking nuts when you see it for the first time in full glory, like it was meant to be in a theater. Uh, well, a, a few more people I want to single out. Um, one of them, because unfortunately, sadly, we have to point out that uh, he just died this this past year. Uh, Giuseppe Rotono, who was the uh, cinematographer, the director of photography for this film. Um, you look at his list of credits and you realize. Holy crap, this guy is good. He shot uh, the Stendhal Syndrome for uh, Dario Argento. He shot The Adventures of Bear Munchausen for Terry Gilliam. Uh, So he's the cinematographer that visual effects guys need to go to then, is what you're saying. To a large degree, yeah. Uh, The the thing is, his, his list of credits goes on and on and on, all the way back. And he had worked with Richard Fleischer before on the uh, the unfortunately failed uh, remake of All That Jazz in 79, so they had worked together before. He also shot for Robert Alt- Altman, a film that I have a lot of time for, and it's happily been reevaluated in, in the last few years, Popeye. He shot that. But you go back, and he worked with Fellini. He shot uh, Casanova and, uh, I believe, Satir- yeah, Satyricon for Fellini. He shot Carnal Knowledge. He shot, he shot uh, the Toby Dammit segment 
for Spirits of the Dead for him. Uh, he did. Uh, he shot uh, the Leopard from '63. He shot uh, the the Bible in the beginning. Uh, Rocco and his brothers, Ghosts of Rome. This is a man whose career started as a cinematographer in 1955 and 1985. That's 30 years under his belt doing this job. And that's why the movie looks so fucking good. He knows his job. And the fact that this is, this is the, this is, this film gets that kind of love and care from a cinematographer with that kind of talent. Holy crap, a moly did this movie luck out in that regard. But then again, you know, you're shooting it in Italy. You get the, you get those, those craftsmen just live over the hill, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> in this, also, let's talk about the, uh, uh, Daniello Donati, the uh, production designer and also the costume designer. Holy crap, was this guy good? First of all, one of the best things about this movie is the production design. I think you will agree. Oh, yeah, not just the sets that I was lauding, but I know that I made a joke about Gedrin's uh, uh, crown and like her face mask looking obviously plastic, but a lot of the other things uh, that are in this, the armoring, particularly of the female warriors that are at the beginning that are Mm -hmm. defending this amulet thing. Uh, It's interesting to see, and it's actually really great to see armor that matches their male counterparts. It's not about displaying their bodies. It's about protecting it for real. That's how the armor was designed. They had chest plates. They had uh, things to protect their vitals, just like the men do. It was equal one-to-one and still kind of (laughs) sexy, the armor that those ladies had. Well, the thing is, though, what, what, what I love is that the armor, both for male and female people in this movie, adhere to the thing that you have to be smart about, which is you have to you have to leave the arms and legs free enough for movement. They have, you know, that that's that's necessary or you're dead. You start impeding free movement and you slow someone down and they're not going to survive. And that is true of both genders in this film. And, it, and it's just played perfectly. And yes, the costume design is is part of that. It's uh, it's kind of, it's kind of wild. This, as far as the costume design is concerned, let's talk about the fact that as a costume designer, Mr. Donati worked on. Well, let's let's get the big one out of the way first. He worked on Flash Gordon. As far as I'm concerned, that means he's good for life. Uh, he's, I have that in 4K Ultra HD, by the way. Oh my oh. god, is that amazing? So fucking well done. But this is another guy who worked uh, for Fellini on a number of films. He also uh, worked on the Canterbury Tales, uh, the Arabian Nights. Uh, he did the uh, costume design for Salo, if you're curious. Uh, <laughs> so, like, no costumes, basically? I, was uh, you got to get those uniforms right. right? <laughs> <laughs> well, the uniforms were accurate, but they weren't worn very long. <laughs> There's that. Uh, the, uh, the 1967 uh, version of The Taming of the Shrew... Uh, what what a long list of credits, and it's just that's just on the costume design side. He was able to do full production design on uh, about eighteen films, and uh, Flash Gordon and Red Sonja are the two that stand out for me. Although his work on on Hurricane uh, is something that I've witnessed as well. Um, I have avoided the two thousand two version of Pinocchio that he did production design for simply because it looks way too saccharine. And I, you know, I don't want to up my glucose level if I can avoid it. Um, <laughs> That's fair. Well, it's Roberto Benini and it's like, you know, so much, I can take about 10 minutes of Roberto Benini before I start to feel like I'm, I'm being shoved a, a bowl full of sugar, you know, it's like, okay, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Go. Yes. 
My teeth already hurt. Can we please stop with this? <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm good. Thank you. I'm good for, you know, a decade. But um, so people, what we're trying to tell you is there's a reason that this film looks so good in high definition. It is a well-made film on the production side. Once again, we can start debating on other other elements of the of the film but visually this is well done also one well at least one person i want to i want to mention because i i'm i am this way uh i love how organic and violent the action sequences are all the sword play and part of that comes down to the uh the second unit director on this the stunt director a man named vic armstrong and believe me, you have seen Vic Armstrong in a movie, you just didn't know it. Uh, he was the man being dragged under the truck in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, he is the man who was the stunt coordinator and Christopher Reeve's stunt double in Superman. Uh, like I say, you've seen this guy. He made over 100 films as a stunt coordinator and stunt director. And uh, also moved into being second unit director on a lot of different things simply because he would be put in charge of making sure that the action sequences looked good. Uh, apparently, that is something he dealt with here on this film. He is listed as action unit supervisor, which is just a, a good way of saying second unit director for all the action sequences. Um, for a man who did that job pretty effectively on a lot of other films, I'll name a few. Uh, Total Recall, uh, Terminator 2, Universal Soldiers, uh, Universal Soldier, sorry, uh, Last Action Hero, um, Rob Roy, The Phantom, Starship Troopers, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, um, World Is Not Enough, uh, the Charlie's Angels movie from 2000, uh, Die Another Day, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, um, that, that misbegotten third blade film uh the, the, the this is a man whose long list of credits doing this kind of job will in, indicate to you that he knows what he's doing and that's the reason why the action sequences in this are as interesting and well staged as they are when you have somebody who and, and i've seen video footage of this watching him do this on behind the scenes films on uh, behind the scenes on other films He's one of those guys who would step in and, and say to a director, he says, you know, if we did it this way, it would look it would look more dynamic and it would be different from what we've done before. And therefore, it would it would it would look, you know, it, it'll it'll be a change up for the for the eye. And you can see directors listening to that and then like changing camera positions and things like that. So some of the reason this looks as good as it does when the, when the swords start to flash is because of Vic Armstrong. Well, he also in the coordination of the fighting, particularly in Red Sonia. The important thing that a lot of people miss in swordplay is it needs to be somewhat ugly and a little bit cumbersome, mm -hmm. and yeah. there needs to be mistakes where someone oversteps their bounds. And he puts in mistakes where even our heroes are not like a hundred percent perfect. They overshoot a a, a swath or, or something like that whenever they're doing the fencing bits for the fighting, and they do fight dirty a little bit too, where they find an opportunity and put in a well placed kick to be able to position a stab or something along those lines. And I think that's what's really important. It's There's some showy moments of it to where it almost feels like samurai sword play, where everything is perfect and there's only one opportunity that opens up and one mistake and then, you know, your swordsmith does the kill. 
But in this case, there are gross mistakes that people make in battle in, in the heat of the moment or they panic. And our heroes are, like I said, are not even immune to that as well, where they fuck up and they'll take a wound or they'll miss and then they'll drop their sword and then they have to improvise and grab a torch to fight or mm-hmm. something along those lines. And that's what makes it feel realistic is because they're human and they err. So I, I think that's what works the best with his action. And in all the movies that you described that this man did some of the coordination or second unit for or what have you, all of those even though some of them may not be of a quality that you like, you have to admit that they all have very realistic action moments like that. Yes. Even in something like Last Action Hero, which is cornball and super over the top, the actual violence still feels very realistic and believable. And it's kind of the anchor point of that film. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting the way you described out this guy's entire career of stuff that he did those moments on. Because I, I that's the through line is the action is extremely realistic and believable and in some cases grounds a very corny film. Exactly. And in a lot of cases, the grounded violence is the thing that the the production is is hinging on to keep the more fantastical elements uh, from flying out of control. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I mean, that's, it just feels like this film was a confluence of all of the right materials that they needed at that time to just make it work despite the fact that it absolutely should not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to mention just one more person behind the, behind the screen, uh, simply because I, I, I love what he accomplished here. Um, there's a, there, uh, the, the fellow's name, he's another Italian technician. His, uh, oh, wait a minute. No, he's not. He's British. Uh, and I should have known that before I, before I said something stupid. Uh, his name was Colin, uh, Colin, Arthur. I'm going to pronounce it Colin because uh, it, it is not it is not spelled the way that Colin usually is. Uh, maybe it's maybe mispronouncing his name, which would be a first for me in English. But you know, in other languages, <laughs> I'm really good at. Uh, but he is the fellow who is responsible for having divine for having uh, uh, designed and built the fish machine in the in in, in the uh, segment we'll talk about later in the in the film. And the spider, the, the, the over, that giant spider creature as well that seems to be a pet of Queen Kedron. Uh, he's the man responsible for those. And his long list of credits is pretty damned impressive as well on the special effects side and also on the, uh, on the makeup department side. Uh, he had already worked on, uh, on special effects makeup on Conan the Barbarian, uh, King Solomon's Mines, uh, both never-ending story movies. Uh, he built masks for uh, the the Harryhausen Clash of the Titans. Um, uh, was a makeup artist on Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Was a makeup supervisor on Peck and Paws uh, Cross of Iron. Did uh, makeup on uh, Vampires, my uh, favorite Jose Laraz film. Uh, that means I'm sure he was just putting makeup on naked women. Uh, <laughs> oh, what a life! Uh, what a what a horrible life. He, uh, 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 he, he worked on special effects, specifically on, uh, well, a number of, of very interesting films, including Total Recall, both never-ending story films. Jeez. See, in other words, this guy, uh, he was, he's one of those you know, incredibly competent technicians that you call in to do specific, certain specific things. And in this case for Red Sonja, he created the fish machine, the fish monster, and the spider. Now, one of those, you'll notice doesn't show up as much as the other, shall we say. And that would, of course, be the spider creature. We'll, we'll talk about that because now people, for those of you who've been waiting, we are now finally to the point where I will admit it is time to start talking about the actual story of this thing. Sorry, sorry. Just got a lot to say here. 
Got a lot Nearly of an hour into it, and we finally are talking about the actual story of the film. <laughs> we're, we're getting there. Rarely have I felt more like the projection booth. Okay. Um, plot. Here we go. The film begins with a narration kind of voiceover giving us the, uh, the idea of what we're about to see. And like I say, we've already discussed the way that they finesse the what was going to be the opening of this film and kind of put it just in flashback form as we are introduced to Sonya, the young red, red-haired woman who has been uh, attacked, raped, and left for dead by the soldiers of Queen Gedron, who have just murdered the rest of her family. Uh, it seems Queen Gedron is uh, this kind of roving, tyrannical despot who uh, is roving the countryside, uh, you know, killing everybody she can, gathering as much money and power as she can, trying to increase the size of her forces because she intends to rule the world. Um, well... Interestingly enough, let's let's get to something that I think is interesting. If you watch the trailer for this movie, you will see a bit more of the edited down opening of this film. And a big part of that was that Red Sonja had a brother who was a deadly shot with a crossbow. And the way the reason that they think that uh, Sonja is dead when they leave, in other words, they killed everybody but for some reason didn't kill her, is they left her tied to the house before they set it on fire. And after they ride off, they, um, they, the brother who's not quite dead yet is <laughs> able to. <laughs> yeah, I know. I got to make a Monty Python reference. Sorry, sorry. He, uh, he, he's able to use his crossbow to cut the leather thongs that are holding her arms above her uh, above her head and release her from the burning house. So that, that is how she survives. I, 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 I wish they found a way to include that in the film. Because I think that is that is very interesting, but they, you know, for all for all intents and purposes, you could watch this entire film multiple times and never even know she had a brother. So, um, the like I say, you can see some of the footage of that in the trailer. Go check it out. Um, here's where we get into the uh, to the, the the touchy bit of this, which is something that we're going to uh, we're going to attack head on and not not be glancingly uh, apologetic about it. The thing that really pisses off Queen Gedron is that Sonya is, manages to take a swipe at her and gashes her face. Uh, so being really vain, Queen Gedron, of course, very, very unhappy about this. And as a matter of fact, for the rest of the movie, she tends to wear something that covers up the scar left from this gash. And um, the reason that Sonya seems to have reacted so horribly is not just that her entire family was was just murdered and she's the only one apparently left, but because it uh, it seems that Queen Gedron is a lesbian and has decided that she's going to take Sonya back as a consort. And this is uh, part of the reason she reacts the way she does, and this is what results in Gedron having her men use her as a rapey plaything. Um, let's get right to it. The villain of this film is a strong female, played by Sandel Bergman, who is a lesbian. In the mid-80s, this would not have caused anyone to bat an eye. This is something that would, you know, don't get me wrong, amongst the LGBTQ family of people, people of, of different sexuality, the, let's, let's call it the, the queer community, this would have been a kind of rolling of the eyes of uh, uh, unobvious. Here's how we create a villain. We make her a lesbian. Or this is how we create a villain. We make him a gay man. Um, here, I will admit, 
it's not as played up. As, in other words, I can imagine a young child watching this film and not getting that. Uh, but eh, once you hit puberty, it's pretty obvious. There's, it's it's something they're not hiding, but it's not. It's also they're not playing it up strongly in the dialogue. Um, I'll I'll grant you it's problematic, and it is the one element of this movie where I go, eh, that's a little bit cringe, and I felt. I felt it was a little bit cringe even the last time I watched this, which was probably about a decade ago. It's uh, it's the reason for that text crawl at the beginning of this Blu-ray, I think. <laughs> yeah. And while it is definitely a sore, sore spot, yeah. the idea as to why she would be so angry and, and obsessed with her, if this character, Gedrin, was in fact a man... And also vain and all of that, and wanted to take Sonya and then did this. It would still be the character would still be evil for everything that they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It's not necessary to make it that it would be a female and a lesbian who also predatory as fuck yeah. in everything that she does, uh, and and basically just angry and vengeful and all of that kind of stuff. It is a holdover from a Bongon era of Hollywood where you can't have the LGBT you folks shown in a positive light in any way, shape or form. It is definitely regretful. It is definitely something that would not necessarily be something that you want to have representative of that community, but not every single person is a good person just because their sexual orientation goes against the mainstream either. So you would still have folks that are villainous as well, just because they happen to be of of the community of the LGBTQ doesn't necessarily mean that they're also good people. You know, there's, there's people are people all the way around. It doesn't matter who they're into or what they're into. You could have someone who could still be a villain. It's just unfortunate that this is coming out of the era where they're all villains. And in this particular case, one of the worst villains that you could possibly get, because they're trying to destroy the world for their own power and, and glorification and vanity and everything like that. So it is a very touchy subject, but it doesn't 100% define Gedrin in that case either because she's just evil overall. Right. The fact that she's into women doesn't really overshadow the fact that she's also evil. You know what I mean? So well, you could well, you could you could you could have a man in that role and it would be the same result for everything. Yeah. It, well exactly and that would be my point which is that you know the things we've described this character as is you know uh, okay Evil because of a, an intense lust for power. I mean, this this woman wants to rule the world, and she's going to mow down anyone who gets in her way. Um, her extreme vanity. Uh, she's she's a megalomaniac. But at the same time, these are also attributes that you could lay at the feet of a, a villain in any film of this type. Whether you know whether they were a man or a woman, it wouldn't really matter whatsoever. Whatsoever. Uh, and and I think that you know. Placing the placing the lesbianism characteristic on this villain is unnecessary, but at the same time, uh, it it it's seen in the story the way they've constructed it as yet another driving force, not just of aha she's the villain, but also a driving force for anger uh, for uh, Red Sonia's character, not just vengeance for the murder of her loved her loved ones, but also her anger at this woman thinking that she could do that and then take her to bed. Uh, and th- this, this, this power, this, this, this lust for power, seeing it as an extension 
past just the ambitions to rule, but also as a characteristic that would that would permeate every part of a of a villain's character. That I understand. That's why you would build a character like this regardless of gender. In other words, you're not going to have a villain in a film of this type who is, you know, seeking to rule the world through evil means, you know, un, un, unrepentant uh, of whatever ends she has to employ, you know, whatever means she has to employ to reach her end. But that's going to permeate every aspect of her character and therefore being a, a harsh person to the people that she's uh, having sexual interest in is just a, nat- a, a natural outgrowth of that. But it is, uh, it is a little cringy, I'll be honest with you. But I would think that other than the fact that you might have a, a bad reaction to uh, smart mouth children, that'd be your only cringe, <laughs> your only cringe feeling <laughs> about this particular film in this day and age. I'm not sure. Yeah, the brat is definitely something that's a hard thing for most people to get over. The reason my wife never wanted to watch this again is because how annoying Ernie Race Jr.'s character is in the film, for sure. Okay, she, you that's know that's the, the thing that thing? she doesn't want to watch again. The strangest thing to me was uh, it was this past week when I, when I sat down and, and asked Beth if she wanted to watch this with me. She said, yeah, sure. She'd never seen it. She actually enjoyed the shit out of the kid character because she enjoyed the fact that it's like as soon as he's on screen, she's like, this kid's going to get his comeuppance and it's going to be the red-haired chick that's going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. I think it's just that it doesn't happen soon enough for my wife. Oh, it doesn't happen soon enough for me either. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, back to the film. Well, uh, as as Sonya is left for dead... um, like I said, I, I do wish that they'd left in the, the the dying brother freeing her from the house from the house because that does explain why later on we have that line of dialogue from Queen Gedron who's surprised that she's still alive. <clears throat> but the uh, the uh, red goddess appears to her, this goddess, uh, and gives her uh, promises Sonya that she will have uh, heightened strength. And uh, fighting skills on the condition that she never essentially give herself to a man unless he defeats her in fair combat, which is pretty interesting and and, and is one of those uh, wonderful details to build a character like this off of because it, it, it both addresses and deflects the character's innate sexuality, which I think is a, a, a smart way to construct a character like this. And that kind of goes back to the uh, the way the character was built into the Conan comic books as well. Uh, we do not get what I expect next. Then it's strange what I would not have thought about when viewing this in the theater in 1985, and what I think about when I rewatch this film in a modern age. Is like what we need next, of course, is a is a montage. But the film doesn't give us that. It's it's an 80s film without a montage. How does this happen? We just jump uh, at least a few months, if not a couple of years, into the future where we see that uh, Sonia has been training under a swordmaster and uh, at, a, at, a, at a large school for other such students and uh, is apparently one of the best they've ever turned out. And of course, if you've been blessed by a goddess, I guess that would just be natural, right? <laughs> she uh, is, she's, she's, it's proclaimed by the grand master of the place. Uh, and it's strange how they choose certain characters to be embodied by, uh, 
by Asian actors and actresses. It's very, uh, it's very, it's very interesting. This is something also that that kind of plays across the three, you know, the two Conan films and this. There's some, there's some really great casting here, and it, it's almost as if they were going out of their way to try to cast an amalgam of different types from different nationalities because we are, you know, we're talking about a completely fictional uh, world. Uh, for the most part here, as, mu- as grounded in reality as one or two of these movies is. And I think that it's great that, that that this is the kind of thing where these people are not seen spread out across, you know, an entire planet, but it's kind of mixed in amongst everyone from place to place to place. I think it's 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 pretty interesting. I'm reminded of like that, uh, you know, like the, the various types of people that you run across in uh, Conan the Barbarian and in different cities and and uh, even in outer lying areas. It's 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 a, it's a neat little detail that I'm not sure exactly why they did it that way, but I think it adds to the storytelling in a lot of ways. Just the casting alone. Well, and you would always the role play fantasy, like a Dungeons and Dragons or what have you. You would always have these characters that would come together for a party that should be not really getting along because they're you know from various you know like dwarves, elves, things like that. And the easiest way to do that in a fantasy film without actually trying to get yourself a little person to play a dwarf or something along those lines yeah. is to have all these different nationalities just sort of interplaying together in all of these various cities where it shows you a a wide swath of peoples to let you know that even though these are sort of ancient barbarian times, uh, there's these folks all kind of come together because they are adventurers, they're survivalists, and they've ended up in these cities or these various compounds or what have you. And that's why they all sort of work together and everything is cool, you know, because they found a way to work together. It, it just gives you a much broader scope of a world in sort of a microcosm where they're gathered in these various areas, whether it's compounds or cities or, or what have you. And particularly the Swordmaster group, you would, you would assume that this is of someone that trains warriors for battle. They set up shop here in this particular type of land, and they're attracting people from all over, all these various kingdoms yeah. or or fiefdoms or whatever it is that they may come from, they come to this person to train and this person just set up shop here. Maybe they're from another land where, you know, where they gained notoriety and respect and they just become like this neutral training ground, which could exist maybe, but the film doesn't have to come up with all this or explain any of it or anything like that. It just shorthands it by having a mixture of various cultures various races and various types of peoples and even the swords that their sword makers make is a wide swath of barbarian swords or ninjutsu swords or you know like the longer uh the dochi you know huge sword that like a royal guard would carry and then there's like the various barbarian swords or viking style swords or what have you that are that are there as well it's just a way of showing you that these cultures have somehow come together in this land and all found a way to coexist but also kill each other brutally with these <laughs> these weapons <laughs> these of, large edge weapons yes and with these large edge weapons that are made by all the same blacksmithing so someone had to teach them the techniques to make all of these different swords so they've had to have coexisted in some fashion so you can kind of infer that maybe this is a neutral training ground for all of these soldiers or something 
it, the, I will I will say that it's really fascinating because one of the one of the things that I'm going to, to say that it, it's another thing that I wish uh, the the wish was uh, in the film just with a, a little extra emphasis is that as kind of a graduation gift from the school the grandmaster tells Sonia that she can that she can pick out uh, her weapon to uh, to to leave the place with I guess it's like a like I say it seems like a kind of a graduation gift and so she's going through all these swords and she's. She hears that goddess's voice again direct her to a specific sword, and uh, something that the uh, the comic book adaptation pointed out because they emphasized it in the artwork is that the sword that she's guided toward is exactly the same kind of sword that she was blessed with by the goddess. And I wish the movie had kind of had kind of focused in on that a little bit to make it uh, to make it obvious that that's the reason the goddess directed her toward that. Yeah, it's nice to know that difference and that that stuff that's in the background that that belongs in the comics, because the way that they make it sound in the movie, they never really go into that that was part of the blessing from the goddess. Mm -hmm. In the movie, it just feels like she hates men because of the sexual assaults that happened to her earlier in her life, which is also a regrettable position to kind of put into the film. But it is one of those things that I think... It's it's complete. Not only completely believable, of course. I mean, my God, I can't imagine, uh, you know, any woman who would not feel the way she's, you know, the the things that she's verbalizing. But at the same time, she's also even when she when she's having that conversation with the grandmaster when she's preparing to leave, uh, she she does emphasize that it's not all men that she that she uh, is distrustful of because she obviously has great affection for the grandmaster, but. That means it's someone she has to have, you know, earned. Someone has to have earned it from her, which I think is another thing that's great to set up right from the outset, which is part of the whole idea of someone who can best her in battle. Someone earns the respect. Someone earns the right to touch her, and I think that that is uh, that is uh, that's something that I think that's admirable in this in the construction of the character in the film. Yeah, they do kind of pull back from it a little bit with that but whenever the person that was like her final training partner goes to embrace her to sort of cat like congratulate her and everything i think it would have been better if they would have just been like because of what's happened to her she's distrustful of everyone not just Mm. men because the way that they phrase it where it's all you hate men is very much that sort of it's sort of that talking point of what some folks would lay at the feet of someone who is just a lesbian, you know, would not just, just doesn't want the affection of men or what have you. Mm-hmm. It's one of those sort of very negative connotations where they're like, oh, well, you just are a man hater. You know, that's kind of what they're getting at here with this. And I'm glad they broadly step over it and just move on. And I kind of wish that the goddess would have basically done that phrasing or they would have had that phrasing at the beginning whenever she blesses her so long as you don't give yourself to anyone who doesn't defeat you in battle something along those lines to kind of smooth some of these rougher edges out would have been kind of nice but it is the time frame that it was made in and again we had that scrawl at the beginning and to give us a warning that there would be some attitudes like that um, that we would probably have an issue with with modern eyes that's interesting I hadn't really thought too much about um the fact that uh, Sonya's attitude, as presented in the film, could be seen as a problematic element of the film as well. But you're right; I hadn't really, I had not really considered that just because the until story... last night's viewing. I never thought of it that way yeah, as much the, either. 
the story puts us, you know, on her side in every way. And so I'm not, you know, I'm not thinking in those terms, but I, I can see where you, I can see what you're talking about. That's interesting. Well, yeah, um, it was only that one scene. And then after that, it was not that much of an issue. It was just the way that the film dealt with it just, and given the negative connotations that have to do with Gedron's sexuality, that those two things together, I can see where someone watching this through today's eyes would definitely have very serious cringe moments. True. Very, very true. Sonia. Thank God. I've lived long enough. The talisman stolen. All the priests massacred. We fought. Just Vanna. Later we can talk. There's no time. Listen. The talisman has terrible power which grows in the light. In 13 days, it could destroy the world by storm and earthquake. You must destroy the talisman, Sonia. Send it into darkness. Swear that you will. I swear. Who took it? Uh, I don't know. There was a woman with a gold mask. Soldiers. Where did they take it? North, south, Vanna. <sighs> this is the point at which we are introduced in the in the film to. Uh, Sonia's sister, uh, Varna, who uh, is one of the priestesses at the uh, nearby temple that guards the mystic light-powered relic, the talisman. Um, I will say that I would have preferred them coming up with a different name other than just the talisman, because every time they say that, I just keep thinking about the Peter Strab Stephen King novel every time. It's, it's, <laughs> it's like, come on, let's give it a different name. But Apparently, this incredibly powerful, magical thing created the world and all living things. And for reasons never explained, although I think it is really interesting to kind of have those thoughts on your own, uh, only women can touch the talisman without being destroyed. Uh, I would, of course, think that uh, that would be because of the concept of the Mother Earth perhaps the thing that created the entire world and everything on it pretty much has to be feminine in nature. That's not something the movie ever talks about or draws out or anything like that. It is essentially a, 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 an interesting plot device that forces the, the narrative in certain directions because you have to have a woman involved to take care of this problem. But I still think it's a pretty interesting thing that once again, just another thing that they could have drawn out and played with. Not that they needed to, but it's it's pretty neat. Uh, we 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 are introduced to this thing uh, once again, more old school special effects, which I highly appreciate. Um, and it and uh, Queen Gedron, of course, knows about this thing, and that is what she wants because she knows she can use this particular thing to uh, fire it up and destroy places who that will not bend the knee to her. But when uh, Gedron's army show up, they uh, they do run into a problem because uh, the 
women who guard this thing are serious ladies with edged weapons of their own. Uh, so a, a big fight ensues, and I have to admit, this whole assault on this place where the talisman is, this, this is, this is one of my, my, my highlights of the film. I just really enjoy this entire sequence, because like I say, the violence feels very real, the staging of it is incredibly entertaining, and it's, uh, like I said, we, 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 don't, we don't get intestines slapping on the boots here, but we do get a fair amount of bloody violence, and I'm pretty happy with it. Also, cinematography-wise, the sequence where they're doing the ritual to be putting this talisman thing into the ground to remove its power so that it can no longer uh, be the destructing force that it actually is becoming. Mm-hmm. I really like where the over, the, like through the oval that's at the very top, that they actually have that overhead view where all the women gather around and point their swords toward the center mm-hmm. in like this very synchronized swimming style fashion. Yeah. Is so beautifully yeah. shot. It's in, it's incredible. I never thought that I would like see that and be like, oh my God. You know, just have like this almost breathtaking away moment of just how beautiful the shot was, but it was. It was there and it was actually really, really cool to see it's, that happen. Because it is it's synchronized swimming the way that they circle it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a Busby Berkeley thing out of the old out of an old Hollywood musical. It's really beautiful to just just as an image, yeah. Yeah, and they took the time to coordinate all of these ladies moving at once, pointing the swords in the fashion as they form the circle so beautifully that just you know that that had to take a little bit of time for them to be able to do it. And that it doesn't need to be in there. We don't need to see that shot, but it absolutely 100% adds to production value that it's in there. Mm -hmm. It's just another little... I'll call it a grace note. It doesn't need to be there, but man, it adds visually and it adds to the atmosphere and the feel of the entire piece. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention it because it was at that moment that, I mean, besides all of the various vistas that I thought were gorgeous, but seeing that moment of the synchronized swimming sword pointing towards the center for this ritual that I was like, my goodness, did I make the right choice to go 4K for this? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so after this after this massive fight, uh, Varna manages to survive and escape. Uh, she after she does watch Gedrin uh, steal steal the talisman and uh, kill the rest of the survivors, uh, the surviving priestesses, by throwing them down into the hole in the ground that they were going to put the uh, the the uh, talisman into. When, when, when escaping, Varna is uh, shot in the back. She's, uh, sw- she's uh, sliding over a, a, rope, uh, a rope bridge between, uh, between two uh, points. On, uh, there's, a large, there's a large crevasse, and they've obviously just rigged up a faster way to get across this area. She gets shot in the back, and at that point, a character that we have seen under... We, 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 we neglected to mention that under the credits, we are introduced to Arnold Schwarzenegger's character. Not in any dialogue or anything. We're just watching him ride across these huge open vistas where they shot this movie in various parts of Italy. Uh, and we're not, we don't know who the character is. We've not been told anything about him other than the fact that he's riding a very long distance. The credits make this clear. And he encounters a rope bridge that has been destroyed in his journey and has to alter course. This is when he shows back up in the narrative when he's on the other side, sees Varna being shot, um, grabs her on the other side so that she doesn't fall and starts questioning her. This is when we discovered that he, he is uh, Kalidor. He is someone that actually the priestesses were waiting for 
to oversee the, the, the uh, destruction of the talisman because although no man can touch this thing, apparently the uh, the Lord of Hyrcania? Hyrcania, yeah, I think it's Arcania. Is supposed to oversee things of this nature, and he, Kalidor, is that person, but he wasn't able to get there because, as we were shown under the credits, his pathway had to uh, go, go a different route. So uh, he finds Varna, she tells him what's happened. Uh, it's clear that she's uh, probably not going to last very long. She asks him to go to her sister, Sonia, and to bring her back to her. And what I love is that the film doesn't point this out, but not only is Kalidor sent to do this for the reason of you know an errand of mercy to, so that uh, she can say goodbye to the last surviving member of her family, um, but also that this is because by telling her sister of this and kind of presenting her with this information, she's essentially putting a woman, one of the the half of the planet that apparently can touch this thing on the path to actually doing something about it. And I think that's, I think that's pretty cool. And like I say, the film doesn't have to double underline this, but it is uh, one of the reasons why once uh, Kalidor has fetched Sonya and uh, poor Von, Varna dies after telling her all this information Sonya does feel compelled, and in fact, as if there's no, nothing else that she could possibly do to take care of this. Uh, you know, bonus points for it being somebody she wants to kill anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that her entire family was now slaughtered by Queen Gedrin, and now the vengeance is complete because not only is going to go kill Queen Gedrin going to make Red Sonya feel better about her life, it will also save the entirety of the planet that she currently resides on. It's a win-win situation for her. <laughs> Let's briefly talk a little bit about the uh, the actors in this film. Um, Queen Gedron, played by Sandel Bergman, last seen in, at playing uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's love interest in Conan the Barbarian. Um, my memory of this is that she was terrible in this movie, and I have to admit I was wrong. I don't know if there had been some kind of improvement in her acting skills or if just my, my view of of uh, female actors has changed over the years, but she's actually pretty, she's actually pretty good in this movie as the villainous queen. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course, is, uh, he's at the level that he was in the early eighties. Don't give him too much, too much that's complicated. Don't ask a lot of him and just point him in the right direction and you'll be okay. Um, (laughs) Bridget Nielsen, uh, this movie introduces her in the credits. This is her first film. She was a model. Um, I'm going to say that, you know, not trying to be mean-spirited here or anything, but she is the weakest She's the weakest actor on screen. And that, But that, for being her first role and coming from being doing modeling to acting, there are significantly worse model-turned-actress performances for the first role in a oh, film. Yeah. And having the entirety of the film be on her back, I think she still does quite well it helps that she has a supporting cast that she can bounce off of to make her feel more realistic and and believable and the fact that it's an italian made film and then very much dubbed back over kind of helps a little bit too well i mean i think that it it is it's another aspect of the film that i get a kick out of which is the various and sundry accents of the very of the cast members uh nobody sounds like anybody else and I'm kind of pleased with that in a way that I think a lot of audience members, people coming to this film, uh, would see would see it, they would see it as a detriment, and I do not. I see it as a plus. 
I like the fact that there are all these different accents. It's you know another. It's part of that that joy of seeing different all these different ethnic types blending on screen. Well, there's really, that, and just again the type of hero quest party folks that would end up in a fantasy novel or in you know fantasy battle role play. Uh, D&D or whatever, you always have these various people from all over these different regions that all come together to save their world or something along those lines. And this just fits in with that sort of element of a fantasy story where it's Mm -hmm. people from all over all these different places that have to put their differences aside and work together to go on this hero quest. So it is a way to shortcut that without having to actually say that that's what's going on just by allowing everybody to be in their original accent. The, um, she, she, she gets, she gets the job done, but there are more than a few places where I, I wish that there would, you know, that there was a bit more experience under her belt as an actor to get like when she screams, Gedron, where are you at the end of the film? Yeah. You really feel her lack of acting talent there. It's not, it's not just there. There's some, there's some moments when I feel like, uh, the director might have pushed in for a close up of her face. If she were, was someone who had been taught very, you know, different things about, um, you know, how to use her eyes and, and, uh, and her mouth in a way to get across nuances of emotion instead of just broad swaths of emotion. And if you're the, hiring Bridget Nielsen, you are not trying to get any kind of emotive uh, subtlety no, in any no. of her performances at all. Like, even as she grew to become a better actress, emotional subtlety, su- subtlety and, like, emotive facial expressions were not something that she ever really does. I don't think she does that even as a person. It just doesn't seem to be that way. She's very stone-faced and very hard to read, even in interviews with her. Well, let's just say that, as strange as this may sound, this this six-foot-tall, you know, model uh, turns in a better performance in Chained Heat 2 in 1993 than she does here. Well, no one is arguing the glory of her performance in Chain Heat 2 here. No one. And some of us are going to probably end up watching that later today, too. Uh, that, there you go. You know, you know, as, as, as long as you do it in the privacy of your own home, we, we need never know exactly what happens while you're watching that particular film. Well, I'm certainly not going to be playing it in an outdoor theater situation, no. <laughs> God, let us let us all hope not. And moving on. Uh <laughs> Let's get to, yeah. My God, we're an hour and a half into this, and we still have not touched on half the freaking storyline. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to do something about this. Poor Varna dies, and they do that that ama- they do that amazing funeral with her, which is something I was glad the film took the time to do. They where they uh, they burn her body on a pyre. I thought that was thought that was nice. 
uh, not, not just visually, but it's you know it's it's one of those uh, in these kinds of stories. It's one of those moments that is a signal that the the film is moving into a different stage, and of course, that is very much true. I also like that the uh, Red Sonia character waits until the body is in a blaze and definitely going to be burnt to a crisp. And then just decides, oh, it's time to go. I don't need to watch the whole pyre burn out. It's done. I'm, I'm gone. Let's go yeah, get some vengeance, revenge now. Vengeance saith the red woman. Exactly. Uh, well, uh, Kalidor says uh, that he, he's going to accompany her, and she says no. She fully rejects him. Says, nope, don't need a man. Don't need you. Going to do this on my own. Goodbye. And he's going. his entire attitude is, yeah, okay. <laughs> let's, let's see how this plays out, because uh, she still does not know exactly who he is. Well, here we go. This is where she uh, witnesses the aftermath of the fact that the talisman is now in Queen Gedrin's hands because she has uh, essentially destroyed the nearby city of Hablock. And while walking through the, uh, the, the ruins of this particular destroyed place now, she comes upon what apparently might be the only two people who survived, or at least are still in the area and, and have survived. Prince Tarn, a uh, precocious little fucker that he is, and uh, his uh, servant or bodyguard, Falcon, or Falcon, who uh, they pronounce it a couple of different ways in the film. Now, there's a supercut idea. Who says that, uh, who explains, you know, the whole, the whole Gedrin used the talisman to destroy the place, and uh, then when, or at least destroy half of it, and then when uh, Prince Tarn, the, uh, the surviving member of the royal family, refused to uh, bow the knee, uh, she used the thing to destroy the rest of the city. He's been left in a rather interesting position where he is kind of on a bizarre seesaw that seems constructed out of the, the hand of a destroyed statue. This is a this is a great set piece. This is another place where you can see a lot of time and money spent on the production design. Yeah, uh, especially the fact that they have this giant, clearly crafted out of foam hand that is just strong enough to support the weight of the actors mm -hmm. in a very specifically placed pivot point that when we come upon them, it seems like maybe the kid just put himself on the hand just to make his servant do something for him. Maybe. Because the kid is just a total spoiled brat. Or maybe that's just how the hand fell and he jumped on it to try and save him and they've been stuck like that for who knows how long and the kid's too much of a brat to walk across the hand like he's being begged by his servant. <laughs> yes, please, but, please, come, please, please, please. Yeah, it, he established it. Is, he's established right off the bat as the absolute most spoiled fucking brat royalty that you could possibly get. And in my younger years, I was extremely irritated by him and hated him so much. Although in my absolute youth as a little kid, it was really nice to see a kid who could do the adventure and fighting and maybe hold his own with adults. Maybe. You know what I mean? Like, there's that weird aspect, but like, about maybe 10, 12 years ago, watching this film on DVD, he was the most irritating thing in the world to me. And if anyone <laughs> would never want to watch this film again, like my wife, because of how irritating he actually is in these scenes when he's first introduced, I can't blame them at all because it's oh, really no. hard to stomach. Yeah. But when I watched it myself last night, I realized, oh no, he's supposed to be a brat. He's a royal spoiled brat who needs to learn a lesson and have a character arc. And it just so happens that he is so irritating and so awful that he becomes comic relief. And you just have to kind of deal with that or it's going to suck up all the enjoyment of the film for you and make it kind of hard to get through once he shows. 
Well, I mean, and, and he is the one character in the film that we actually, you know, the, we actually watch uh, have a character arc. He's someone who actually changes over the course of the story. And Sonia has a lot to do with that because she has the instinct to be like, you could be better. And she finds a way to inspire him, which is something that I think the Sonia character doesn't really get enough credit for, particularly in this movie, is that when she's around people, her strength is a source of inspiration. And she tends to make everyone either a better warrior or a better person just for having traveled with her. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, like I say, it is, it is things like that, that I think, uh, the director could have gotten across a little bit better if there was a more experienced actress in the role. That's a lot to be laid at her feet though. I mean, she fits the, the physical mold, but they, yeah, they probably could have given her some acting lessons or something. Oh yeah. I mean, with some of that 18 million. I, I, (laughs) well, the thing is she was cast just before they were going into production. So there wasn't a lot of time to do much more than get her trained as a swords, a sword wielder. They, you know, they, they, they kind of hurt themselves in that regard. It's like the, this train is moving. You need to jump on it right now. So when it's time to do the battle, she is excellent. Physicality. She is yes. excellent at absolutely. It's just some of these interpersonal dialogue delivery things where she falls a little short, but for her character, just coming from the battle, or, or battle training, if you will, and just this is like her first full-fledged adventure to go get revenge for what happened to her family. Maybe she hasn't had a chance to really adapt the social skills. So maybe you could kind of give that character a little leeway for not being so, you know, interpersonal with her discussions. Well, in a, in a better world, uh, maybe not. Okay, maybe not a better world, but in a different world, would it have been nice if this film had been successful enough to garner a sequel? And we would get to see, you know, her with a little bit more experience under her belt to to actually take a shot at getting 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 across more uh, more complex emotional depth than is even being asked for here. Of course, what I'm asking for is madness itself. But we did get two Conan films for God's sake. So you know, anyway, not gonna live in that. We don't we don't live in that timeline. We we live in this sick, sad, demented timeline. So let's. Let's get back to the fact that we now have introduced these two other characters. Let, let, let's let's talk briefly. I just I have to mention Paul Smith, Paul L. Smith, as the the servant character uh, Falcon. He is an actor I have a lot of time for just because he's a blast. He was Bluto in Popeye for Robert Altman, and uh, if that's not enough for you, he's also he's also in Pieces, which you should bow down and thank the gods for. Uh, he was the Beast Raban in the 84 version of Dune. He was in the completely insane movie Crime Wave from this same year. My first introduction to him as an actor and then seeing him in this film, I was terrified of him and wondered why he was being so nice to that bratty kid for the first time <laughs> when I was a kid and watching it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, this, this guy's had little, you know, parts in Midnight Express and the in-laws and the Frisco kid. I mean, you know, this... There's there's some real joy there's some real joy when I see him pop up on screen and in my in my opinion there need to be at least twenty other films with him in them and it's just a shame that there aren't more of them. Yeah, Paul he Smith, has the he has the face to play a villain without even having to try. That's and, why and, he was playing. He plays a, he plays a really sweet character and he's good at that too. Yeah, it's a real stretch of a role for him around especially this time frame, mm-hmm. and he definitely could have been like that protector nurturer type of character pretty well you know you you would you kind of see him maybe like uh 
as a guy who is watching out for a group of ragtag orphans. You know what I mean? Like he could be that guy too. He's just yeah. the muscle in protecting them or something along those lines. And it's kind of a sad thing that we didn't get to see more of that in his career where he ended up just playing a lot of baddies. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's a scumbag prison guard or he's Bluto or he's, you know, the most despicable character in Dune. I mean, it's it's, it's a pretty straight. It's it's clear there was a certain amount of typecasting going on. Yeah, it is unfortunate because he does have a very caring, nurturing vein to him in this film that you just never really get to see again. And you kind of wonder what could have been again. True, true. Very true. Uh, well, uh my God, this is going to be a long podcast. Anyway, <laughs> I want to I want I want to take a pause here. And just point out something that we have managed to, to to not mention. One of the things that I think is one of the great strengths of this film, and that is that is my fault because I neglected to bring it up before we started talking about the plot of this film. So uh, blame me for this side road that really is part of the film, which is we should talk about the sheer power and glory of the incredible score for this film. Even in contemporary reviews of this movie, there were three things that were singled out even in the worst reviews of the picture. And one was production design, one was cinematography, and the third, invariably, was the, the just incredible score, the amazing, powerful score that Ennio Morricone wrote for this thing. This is a brilliant suite of music absolutely gorgeous from beginning to end and i think that i'm not going to agree with this wholeheartedly but more than one reviewer has said you know this score is so good it deserves a better movie i don't know if that's necessarily the case it's still a good movie this mr negative reviewer G. <laughs> But my God, I love this music. Uh, I have had uh, I have had this uh, this uh, this this music uh, from on CD for years and years and years. It is something that is never too far away from my uh, from my uh, iPod or any other music device that I have. Uh, I have called out to the the Alexa downstairs to get it to play uh, a different chunk of this score on more than one occasion, and there is just a real joy to the music for this and. I, I'm I'm not totally unsure that there are people out there. I, I would bet that there are people out there who absolutely love this score and hate this movie. Oh yeah, there's a definitely a, a group of score junkies out there that would love this score and hate them. That is a possibility for sure.
having uh, now returned, now we, we shall now return to our movie in progress. Well, <laughs> she now has two hangers on, two people who are going to accompany her because they have every reason to hate Queen Gedron as well. Um, the she tr- she tries to shake them off, but it's it's they're they're like cuckleburrs. They're not going anywhere. Uh, well, they the they ride. basically they basically ignore her and send her on by tracks or by by track or by trucks toll road to get to Bri- the Brightag whatever Brightag Brightag's toll road is is the next thing. So we are introduced to them and they just kind of brush her off and ignore her, and she's in a rush and she wants to go on her own. And then we run into them later, but she has that whole like side quest to you know take care of bright tag and the toll road yep yep and uh this this is this is pretty neat this is a guy who own who who owns the uh area uh that that is a passageway from uh i would call it like the normal lands into the land of perpetual night which is where queen gedron lives uh at this mountain gate uh she uh uh, demands to be let through. Lord Brytag uh, says, "Nope, not until you have sex with me." He calls it the tender tribute, which I think is amusing. Yeah, uh, he says it's the tribute that all women must pay to Brytag. Uh-huh. Uh huh. <laughs> then of course he says, "Well, you know, not not happening." And the fight ensues. She does get a uh, promise from him that her that uh, Brytag's men won't do anything to her after she kills him. He thinks this is amusing as hell because, as he says, I've fought 177 men and all of them are dead except for one who has no legs. So he's pretty convinced that he's got this wrapped up in a nice little ball. Oh, you know what I forgot to tell you? Oh, God, okay, okay. Uh, a detail from the comic from, from the comic that is not in the film is that there is one of those large spiders on the uh, arm that Prince Tarn is balanced on in the in the way that the script apparently because this comic had to be adapted from an early version of the script there was a spider on it poised midway between the two of them and uh, Sonya had to kill that thing before they could get Prince Tarn off of it I'm betting that it, the decision was made that that is just not going to work because that spider thing probably didn't work as well as the fish monster <laughs> yeah the fish monster was a guy in a suit kaiju style the spider would have been mechanical in some way shape or form and probably would have looked like pipe cleaners and hokey and wouldn't yeah, yeah, work yeah. the 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 little bit that they use it when we get to queen gedron's throne room is about as much as you could probably get away with without making people go what in the hell are you doing but yeah there was one of those that was going to be that was supposed to be on the wrist uh, slash arm of that uh that uh, thing that uh, the prince was balanced on, but uh, yeah, yeah, and you got to be careful with those types of spiders that are mechanically made because if you try to use them too much, you end up with a tour the fighting eagle level of spider. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I can appreciate, but only after some beers. So <laughs> right. The the uh, so so anyway, back to uh, Lord Brightag, who, as you might have guessed, isn't long for this world. So. That is a that is a great fight sequence, uh, but it's a, it's a good fight between the two of them, and it does show uh, some some great uh, fight coordination as we've talked about the whole grabbing of a torch to to uh, fend off the scumbag so she can grab her sword back again, stuff like that. It's a, it's it's great, but then of course once she's killed the bastards, uh, his men uh, do seem to be willing to still kill her until from the back they start getting slaughtered and their heads chopped off by Kalidor, who has been smart enough to follow her and uh, help out in this instance. I wonder if he would have actually just said right off the bat that it wasn't about him helping her. It was 
him needing her help if she would have maybe softened a little bit. <laughs> I thought, I've thought about that as well. Yeah, yeah. He's like, He's hey, like, this is this is a mission that I am also on, and I need your help. There's no way I can do it on my own. If maybe that would have changed where she wouldn't have perceived it as him being like, no, you can't do this alone. It was more like, hey, I can't do this alone. I wonder if that would have helped. Maybe, maybe. That's what this scene establishes, right? Is him saying, hey, I'm doing this anyway, and I can't do it alone. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, of course, she escapes through the gate uh, while Kalidor stays behind, still fighting the people who he still hasn't slaughtered. And so, to Sonya's mind, he might have just, you know, closed that gate on her to uh, to go to his death. So she rides off to continue uh, on her way. Clearly, taking a moment to watch him battling and being quite charmed by it, and wondering if maybe he's the one that can defeat her in battle, so that she can finally love again. I guess I don't know. Maybe they hint well, at it a little bit, but they also try to play that out on Brigitte Nielsen's face for acting. So it does fall a little short if you're not paying attention. True. Very true. Which is why I think that we don't get like a, a really tight close up like you would with, uh, with with a different actor in place. Yeah, maybe um, she mugs for the camera too much like a model whenever you try to go in close. <laughs> well, uh, this is at the, this is the point where Sonya comes across Tarn and Falcon again. Uh, Tarn is being tortured by some bandits. <laughs> this is my favorite part of the film. No, it's not my favorite part of the film. Uh, but I do love the fact that he's strung up between four horses and is being tortured to, to by these bandits to see if they can get some money out of him. Hey, having a little kid get like stretched old school like he's going to be torn apart and quartered, that's pretty extreme. And it shows you right off the bat that there are some really bad people in this world if they're willing to do that to a child. Yeah, just for the hope that they might be able to get some cash. Yeah, some more gold out of them just to get them to talk. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. Well, after she uh, puts an end to this, uh, the three of them decide to stay together and travel onward. And uh, Tarn starts to take Sonya's advice and uh, starts practicing slightly better manners, uh, especially when she uh, is willing to uh, to start tutoring him in, uh, in, in better sword practice. Uh, I, I like the fact that one of the things that the first thing she says to him is kind of a bit of advice is that he's gripping the sword too tightly, that it needs to be a looser grip, that that's actually something that I've I, that I that I know is a piece of advice that is given not just to uh, people who are learning how to to fence, but also to people who are learning how to properly bat in baseball. It's like you're, you you hold it too tight and you screw yourself. You're tensing up everything. And it's it's something that, in other words, it is one of those first pieces of advice you'd give to almost anybody. And so that's another thing that just rings rings nicely true about what's going on on screen, which is not something that I think you can say a whole lot about a film of this type. She also almost spanks him, which I find extremely endearing. And I think that even me as a young child watching this was going, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to slide on by that because that's a side road I don't want to go down. Uh, <laughs> yes, we don't want to get into my deep perversions and how far back they actually go. Yeah, that would probably be something best for me to explore with my psychologist. Let's talk a moment about, uh, we keep cutting back to uh, Queen Gedrin to get more information about what she's doing. Let's talk about Gedrin's uh, magic television set. Uh, <laughs> the alchemist guy that's helping her that creates this stuff is also pretty trippy. Yeah, yeah. This is the, this is the uh, the segment where the movie goes. No, no, no. Sword and sorcery. No, this is high <laughs> fantasy, folks. You forgot about the sorcery part of the sword and uh -huh. sorcery. 
Exactly. Here we are. And I, I, I like that this guy's got a setup that seems like something out of a mad scientist lab, but there's also like magical bullshit and, you know, various animal entrails strewn about his workspace. So I'm kind of happy with all of this. And the, the big metal thing that is essentially uh, a variation on uh, kind of a kind of a, a looking glass or a... Um, it's a Star Trek a view ball. screen. It's a Star Trek view screen, only done with magic. <laughs> it's, it's it's straight out of the city on the edge of forever. It's yeah, exactly. So what we have here is this is how she's able to see the the uh, the encroaching horrible troop of of what three or four people who are coming to take our take her ass down, and uh, be kind of amused by it. But it's also the moment when she recognizes Sonya through the magic television screen. And is both surprised that she's still alive and then gives orders to her men that she be brought to the fortress unharmed. She says, not a scratch on her skin, which gives you an indicator of just how difficult a task she's setting for these people, considering that Sonya is more than willing to run a sticky thing through their entrails if they're in her way. So, <laughs> Yeah, and she is not one that's going to be easily captured unharmed in any way, shape or form. Exactly. Well... Using, a ta- using the talisman to conjure up a little bitty storm, she forces Sonya's group to take a particular path so that they have to take shelter in a cavern, which has a big watery area within it, which is where we get to encounter the uh, quote-unquote killing machine, which <laughs> is the, bu- the big fish monster, which in the comic book, by the way, is portrayed as just a big fish and not some mechanical thing. So I do think that that is probably the way they originally envisioned it and then realized just how difficult that was going to look and how shitty it would be. So they went uh, a way that uh, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to check check off some boxes here and make it make note make notice that this is uh, me indicating that I've seen way too many of these movies. You get to a mechanical monster in a sword and sorcery film, and all I can think of is the cut-rate stop-motion special effects of Luigi Cozzi's Hercules movies. <laughs> hey, he all... throws a bear into space and makes a freaking <laughs> star alignment. <laughs> hey, I, don't get me wrong. I enjoy those Hercules movies, but I am well aware of their numerous, somewhat, some might say uncountable flaws. They're still slightly above Ator the Fighting Eagle, because at least we have Lou Ferrigno instead of Miles O'Keefe. How much O'Keefe? Miles O'Keefe. <laughs> oh, I can't believe I got to do that. Anyway, <laughs> we've mentioned Monty Python. Now we've now we've tagged Mystery Science Theater. What could be next? How can I work the kids in the hall into this? Okay. Uh, <laughs> there is some head crushing later, so maybe. Ooh, I hadn't thought of that. You're right. Anyway, we have the big fight with the uh, the fish monster, and this is of course when Kalidor shows back up. Schwarzenegger enters the enters the field, and from what I can tell, <laughs> is being thrashed around pretty heavily by this thing. Because to do what they're doing, I think they had to have a mock-up where this thing was attached to some kind of big mechanical thing under the water, so that it would look good when so- someone of the stature of Schwarzenegger is holding onto it is being kind of like thrown around by it. I think I'm it's rem- a mechanical bull. I think they mounted the thing onto a mechanical bull and then animated it elseways because it throws him around, but a he's lot. also throwing it around himself in some yeah, of the scenes. Yeah, too. I think they may have like, I think they may have a way to have attached it to things because we never see its tail. I think that the back of it may have been able to be attached. I'd love to see some photographs from the production to be able well, to find it. It definitely thrashes around like a mechanical bull does as well. So I, that's why I keep coming back to that. Cause that's what it reminded me of. 
Well, what it reminded me of, uh, as far as Arnold Schwarzenegger suffering on screen, because God knows he got more than a little water down that throat <laughs> having to do this <laughs> sequence. But what it reminded me of heavily was uh, the, the pain and injury that Schwarzenegger went through fighting that giant mechanical snake in Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> because he, I mean, he, he really did get hurt. I mean, not hurt as in put in a hospital, but hurt to the point where literally the director of the film is John Melius is telling him, look, remember for all the pain that you're, you're suffering through, remember this film is forever and your pain will stop. It will go away. So do what you got to do to make this work. And I just get the feeling that uh, Schwarzenegger at some point or another during the filming of this sequence had to be thinking, Jesus, I'm going to drown. Yeah, it gets pretty brutal. And there are some moments that actually you do wonder what could have happened had that mechanical monster actually just pitched the wrong way at the right time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But nevertheless, it is still a really cool sequence and one that I'm sure, you know, anybody who is looking for reasons to not like this film probably punched out a long time ago. But this this scene might send people scurrying for the door or pressing the stop button. I don't know. The terror on his face when he screams, Sonia, it's a machine, I can't kill it, actually feels like maybe he really does think he's about to drown trying yeah. to deliver that dialogue. <laughs> exactly. Remember, at this point, Schwarzenegger's not, he's had some experience, but he's hes not as as, as smooth an actor as he would become by, you know, let's, let's, let's say the, the early to mid-90s where he's had enough experience under his belt. And and let's let's be clear about something else. Schwarzenegger is has always been a humble man about this kind of stuff. So trust me, he was more than willing to work on the things that he was not good at. That is something that has been evident throughout his entire life and career. If he thinks if it's a task he wants to learn, he will apply himself to it and learn it. And so over time, he did get better. And in this film, he's gotten a little bit better than maybe he would have been, you know, a few years before. But. <laughs> Yeah, it does look like that he's acting from sheer, oh God, what have I gotten myself into this time kind of feelings. I'm going to die screaming, it's a machine. I can't kill it. <laughs> this is going to happen to me. This is the worst thing ever. Why the fuck did I come to Italy for this? It's like, what the fuck have I done to myself? And I thought the wig was a bad move. <laughs> yeah, truly. Although, you know, most of the time, most of the time he looks pretty good in this, I got to say. The uh, the tail the tailor knew who they were crafting their clothing for. Let's put it in that. Let's put it in those terms. Yeah, absolutely. That's part of the costume design that we were lauding early. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, they managed to blind the mechanical beast and escape and get the hell out of there. Still, uh, honestly, if you called this your favorite segment of the film, I'd be standing right beside you and going, "That's a good choice, man. That's a that's a good choice." Um, this is what the point at which Sonya just fully accepts Kalidor's uh, accompanying her on this path because, uh, well, you know, he finally tells her the thing that he should have told her at the first, which he is one of the, he's the the Lord who was entrust, entrusted to oversee the uh, the destruction of the talisman in the first place. And of course he flirts with her a little bit and she tells him, hey, no man can have her unless the man can defeat her in a fair fight, a sword fight, basically. And uh, Kalidor stupidly challenges her, and then they fight all night. They seem to fight for longer than two humans should ever really think about fighting until they just both pass out from exhaustion. Yeah, uh, it was never really that clear to me that they started in the night and then went until the day, until seeing it in 4K and yeah. actually seeing the color restoration done properly. Because in certain versions of this film, including the DVD that I own, they overcorrect for that day for night shooting that it starts with. And the color palette just completely blows out. And it looks like they're just fighting in the morning. And it just gets a little bit brighter in the morning. It doesn't look like 
it started in the evening when they were having the conversation and she's taking care of him before he's supposed to go to sleep and she's ready to crash. It doesn't look like that at all. It looks like they were <laughs> just trying to rest in the morning, you know, and it wasn't until this viewing that I got that. And it makes that fight that much more epic because good Lord, how many hours were they fighting? Cause you watch the sun fully rise and they're still trying to kill each other in exhaustion. <laughs> yes. I, I do love the, the little bit of dialogue too. It's another moment where I think I can see the hand of George McDonald Frazier as uh, uh, Tarn and Falcon are Falcon are, are watching this fight take place. Uh, Tarn says, why is she fighting so hard? She doesn't want to win. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like, it's 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 pretty cool stuff, but the the party finally arrives at uh, King Gedron's castle, and uh, very very astutely they find a way to convince Tarn to stay outside and guard the quote unquote front entrance while they sneak in. Uh, they know that uh, you know they, they don't want to take him in there because they're pretty sure that he would you know he, he's he's the least capable of them as a fighter and would therefore end up probably getting killed. So they convince him to guard the front gate, uh, and. Uh, head on um once they get inside this movie goes crazy uh i absolutely love the whole the whole finale of this film because everything has been set up in place we get the the talisman that can cause earthquakes and storms and all this stuff so when the ground starts to open up uh the the fight sequence where we where we have falcon fall down the fall fall down into the room where a lot of the soldiers are eating and break the table and just and then uh first of all i love i love the entire sequence i love the 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 joyous sword battle insanity of this entire section of the movie yeah it's definitely the thing that keeps me coming back and this would be the sequence that i would always catch on cable is Mm. right as they get to gedron's uh lair and they're doing the battle there it seems like you always end up finding that last portion of the film and it's the thing that sticks in your mind and probably keeps you coming back uh i do love that falcor basically kind of trips and falls down this uh shaft into this dining area that they're all trying to raid anyway because he's supposed to take the middle so he rolls a critical failure in his stealth but somehow rolls like a critical success in his recovery. And I just love the line where he's like, how's the food around here? Where he takes a bite to eat of a giant leg bone that he then uses as a weapon. Like, and I kind of, I kind of wish they would have done a couple of more things where he's hitting guys with it and then taking a couple more bites. Cause that fits his character so well, uh-huh. you know, he has sort of a ball stag from the warriors three feel to him a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of does. You're right. So I just wish that they would have played that up a little bit more where, you know, he's already there at the table and the food. So he's sneaking bites of stuff and trying some things, just showing them how little concern they have as warriors to him, where they're not a threat, where he can goof off and eat at the same time. I think that would have been a nice character moment for him. <laughs> uh, we should we should mention that um, an actor that we've not brought up because he plays kind of a uh, kind of a smaller role is like the, the main henchman, the main uh, henchman of uh, Queen Gedra is a, a, a character named uh, uh, Ikol, I-K-O-L, which, by the way, is Loki spelled backwards. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice, nice little touch there. If you're gonna, if you're gonna start playing with names, that's a that's a fun way to go. Uh, but the actor who plays him is someone who's been a, a blue bajillion films in television series. A British actor. His name is Ronald Lacey, and uh, he actually has. I, I did not remember him having as 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 much dialogue as he does in this. When I started, when I when I sat down for a rewatch of this, and I was very pleased because he's an actor who's once you've seen his face, you remember him forever. He's the he's the poor sucker in Raiders 
of the Lost Ark, who uh, gets the gets one side of the of the the thing uh, scorched into his hand. He's the the German agent Arnold Toth or whatever the hell the character's name is, the German character. He uh, he was he did a lot he did he did a lot of comedy and a lot of uh, of different uh, British television series. He was in uh, Blackadder two. Uh, he did uh, Avenger. He did an ep- he did episodes of Avengers. Uh, he was in uh, productions of Hamlet. He, he was in a whole lot of movies, uh, Firefox for Clint Eastwood, and a bunch of other things like that. Uh, but the uh, once you've seen his face in Raiders of the Lost Ark, he's going to be one of those uh, that guys, you know, someone that you're like, I know, I know that guy from. Where do I know that guy from? He was he was also in uh, Verhoeven's Flesh and Blood. He had a role uh, as the president in Buckaroo Banzai. Um, <laughs> He had a small role in in Yellowbeard. For those of you who once again were addicted to cable television in in, in the early eighties, uh, Yellowbeard was another one of those movies that you could not escape. <laughs> it's actually, on HBO, yeah. <laughs> Strangely enough, and this is something I did not know until I was doing a little research on this actor. Uh, they brought him back to play Heinrich Himmler in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in 1989. Um, he, he doesn't get an on-screen credit, but it is him, which I, I think is pretty neat uh, to, to have. You know, this one of those things where, you know, you're just, this actor who added so much to the first Indiana Jones film and to, to bring him back like that, I think is, I think is pretty damn cool of them to have done. Uh, sadly, he died of liver cancer in 1991. That's why he's not still around. Wow, that's like a whole entire career encapsulated in just a few minutes. Uh, well, believe me, if I went into more detail, trust me, he is—he had so many different credits; it's completely insane. But he's just—he's just another little little character actor in this thing who does a really good job and had more of a part in it than I remembered. And I had completely forgotten this thing here at the end as all hell starts to break loose. He grabs—he's grabbed a bunch of the cash because he's been trying to, over the course of the film, convince Queen Gedron to not quite go as far as she is intending to go with this talisman thing. Because you know, if you draw, if you keep going with this and this thing get, keeps getting more powerful because she is of course placed it in a room with about oh i don't know 700 million freaking candles to power it up like she's trying to find a way to get more than 100 percent on her fucking iphone i don't know yeah it has a area where sunlight can come in and hit it during the day and then at night she's keeping the same amount of candle power if not more so she's charging it constantly Mm-hmm. With all which, of the light that she possibly can, which is which, basically which, by overpowering. By the way, will burn out your battery. You've got to watch that. <laughs> yeah. So she's overpowering it, right? And basically, that's what he's trying to warn her about. Like, hey, this thing created the world and everything that we know. If you overpower it, it could probably do the inverse, which is what you're about to do. And she's essentially saying that she would rather have the world not exist than her not be able to control it. Is what yeah. she's saying to him, and that's when he screams madness, and then grabs the saddlebag full of gold and takes off because who knows yeah. how much time the world has left he might as well have a saddlebag full of gold to enjoy coke and hookers <laughs> yeah let, let me let me find a city we haven't destroyed and see where the nearest house of prostitution is and work from work my way up or down from there <laughs> when God. death is imminent and the end of the world is on the way you might as well that's what he's doing he's grabbing he's the gold he's grabbing the gold so he can go out with a bang if you know what i mean and i think you do <laughs> yeah. Well, I love that he does not quite make it out and away because, of course, once he opens the the gate to get out of this place, who stands there but Prince Tarn? And uh, I won't uh, I won't lie to you, Prince Tarn doesn't kill him, but uh, well, 
the head crusher does come into effect here as the gate slides back into position and poor old Icole is in the wrong place and gets all squishified. Now there, I'm wondering if that's in a sequence, if that's a sequence that they filmed more gore and blood for and edited away from, or if they knew they were never going to be able to get away with that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, because basically he'd be throwing up his freaking organs by the time that stone got midway. He'd have yep. stuff like just pouring out of him in all directions. Yippity yep. So the way that they imply it but actually don't show it is probably for the best. Uh, we should also probably mention that uh, the actor playing Prince Tarn, Ernie Race Jr., was essentially a martial arts prodigy at a very young age as a child. Yeah. And the only thing that really kept him back from being super effective in his martial arts was the f his stature. He was a tiny little boy in this yeah. film who so could nobody who could, Yeah, nobody can double for him, so they're not going to put the character in positions where they have to find a, du a double for him, yeah. Right, but he could still perform all of these various martial arts and things like, and, and stunts and things along those those lines. So he does a lot of great physicality, and he is tossed around or picked up and, and held in the air by his clothes a lot by some of the actors and things like that. And he does take some physical punishment a little bit, too, and do stunt work for it that's actually rather well. So there's some limitation on what they could do with him and what they could use him for, but the actual martial arts that he's doing, his form is excellent, and he's like barely even, what, eight in this movie? And he's, <laughs> he's already well, a master no, at martial he, arts. He, he, he's he 12? Was, he was older than that. He was born in, uh, he was born in 72. Oh. So he was, yeah, so he was uh, probably 11 or 12 when they're shooting it, yeah. Okay, he's extremely short for 11 or 12. What, when yeah, he... Yeah. You see him later on, like he's the one that does all the martial arts in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies in the suits and everything because he was the right build and the right height to be able to do it. So a lot of that stuff is him performing in the suits. And he is. He's an extremely skilled martial artist. And even at this young age of 12, even though he looks like he's eight to me, he's incredible. Yeah, most of, most, uh, most of the things that uh, he worked he worked under as a stuntman are things where you would not even see his face. Which uh, you know, not not just you know, he, he played Donatello in the in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the early '90s, uh, and then the stuff where he's on screen. Most of the time, he's uh, he's a stunt he's a stunt performer of one type or another. So that's you know, that's where his that is where his career took him after a certain point. But yeah, uh, he's he's also pretty effective pay, playing a, an irritating child here. So you know, I hope he wasn't actually that way. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I remember there was a TV show that he became a part of, and that's what I remember knowing him from in the 80s as a kid. I can't remember the TV show off the top of my head, but it was a similar thing where he was imbued with the spirit of a martial artist or something along those lines. And Was it called was, Sidekicks? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it, did, it, did it star Buck Rogers? <laughs> <laughs> Again, I do not know. All I know is that he was able to have this special skill of a martial arts master as a child because of some kind of spirit that imbued the power with him. And I was a fan of that show as a kid. And so that carried over into my fandom of him in this film when I was younger. And he wasn't irritating to me. It wasn't until I became like in my 20s that he became irritating to me. And now that I'm in my 40s, I'm forgiving his irritation because I'm like, oh, well, you're just a spoiled brat who has a character arc. And the only <laughs> character arc in this movie, so I'm good. Uh, yes, indeed. Well, nevertheless, uh, he he does he does prove to be uh, pretty effective here at the end, getting getting uh, getting the uh, the scumbag <laughs> played by Ronald Lacey uh, squished, which I think is, you know, like I say, I could I could I could do with with a little bit more blood in the film if we're going to be able to see something like that, but we're not given that. What we are given though 
is some more of this cool ass. First of all, all these incredible sets. This all of the sets this is on, not just the huge cavern place where we have the all the the, the blue bajillion candles, but the, the whole way in which they set up this whole thing where the, the the earthquakes start to happen, the floors start to open up. The duel between Sonya and Gedron is really effective here, and this is where I want to I want to give credit where credit's due. Uh, both of these ladies are very good in this sword fight, and I only learned, you know, only learned by doing some research for this that Sandel Bergman had been a dancer, uh, a trained dancer, which is one of the reasons why she is so good looking in these sequences where she's, where she's, where she's fighting with a sword or moving around in certain ways. She knew what she was doing with her body. She, as a trained dancer, this is one of those things that that helps you on screen in ways that you would not be aware of. It's one of the reasons why all the way back into a uh, classic Hollywood period, 30s and 40s and 50s, studios would uh, require actors to train in dance, not because they expected them to be in dance sequences in a musical or anything like that, but because it allowed them to understand how to move their body in a way that projects certain things on screen. And she's actually, that's why I was so surprised at how much better she is in this than I remembered her being. Yeah, this fight is very much more like ballet than just sword play. It's choreographed so well between the two of them. And you can tell that they both worked very hard to make this fight everything that it is. Because this is the climax. Everybody knows this has got to work. This has got to be, this has got to be violent. It's got to be forceful. This is the culmination of all of the emotional interplay within the story. If this is going to work at all, we have to make this look good. And I think they do a fine job. And I do absolutely love the, the inevitable, you know, of course we, we, we get the ending that we all knew was coming, which is we've got to destroy the talisman and we get a nice, uh, a nice fiery lava death for our, our villainous here. And I think it's, it, I think it's wonderful. It's exactly the kind of, you know, fall from a great height into lava that, uh, I, I would generally, uh, be angry about if we were talking about yet another Disney villain falling from a great height death. But in a movie like this, it feels exactly right. Well, and the other thing too, is this is the world is basically cracking because of the yeah. damage that she is doing with this talisman, their world is slowly ending. And all she can care about is trying to best this person who has made her look bad so that she can continue on her quest to kill. It looks like her entire army has already fled from fear of the crack in the world that has happened in her kingdom, you know? And the only thing that really kind of heals the crack in the world is throwing the talisman into its own fiery death, which basically turns her land into a giant volcano that our heroes have to flee to end the film. So amazing. And what a great ending of a movie. I love the destruct. Well, first of all, I love all the practical special effects in this film bar none. I really do enjoy the shit out of them. Even the, the, the very smartly cut around spider creature that they, they knew they, they hadn't, they couldn't spend a lot of time on. They had Um, to have seen the footage in a tour, the fighting Eagle and been like, Nope, we got to move on. (laughs) Well, I'm sure that they were aiming for something much more interesting than that and then still fell short. And I'm, I wonder if at some point the, the creator of it just turned to me, you want me to spend more money on the fish or the spider? Make your choice. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, the, I find the ending to be very, very satisfying. I really do enjoy the, the way this movie wraps up. I just I have to I have to hand it to this movie. I for years if I for, for a lot of years until this Blu-ray that I could not stop myself from buying, uh, I have for years felt that this was a, a a subpar film, one that I kind of enjoyed, but that what I really loved from the movie was the score. I think the score is just sublime. But now 
I'm gonna I'm gonna say loud and proud to the world around me, people. I really enjoy this movie. Uh, I can completely understand why people would not like it, but the reasons that people don't like it, perversely, are reasons that I do like it. Um, I like this movie. I'm I'm more than willing to say so. And my goodness, this Blu-ray, holy crap, a moly! I'm willing to buy another Blu-ray if they'll add a bunch of extras to it. <laughs> I will say this much. If you watched it before and you thought it was hokey, but you haven't seen it in its full widescreen 2.35 to 1 glory, and you haven't seen it on a big screen, I'm talking, you know, 42 inches or bigger like you're supposed to have for 4K HDR, you need to reassess the film and maybe watch it like that. And if you're within my vicinity and you want to watch it at my place, we can probably arrange that. <laughs> because you need to reassess this movie and this like both of us were like oh my god why am i buying this steelbook it's it's evidence in our social media interactions whenever it was announced we're both like i should not be wanting to buy this as much as i do yeah. and now that i bought it i'm like holy fuck am i glad that i went ahead and got this because i have a whole new lease on life with this film a whole new appreciation for everything that they were able to do mm -hmm. because of this loving restoration and it's kind of making me wonder, like, well, what other films would I be able to reassess if they were presented in such a glorious fashion and so lovingly restored? Well, I've been having that feeling with a lot of movies over the past five or six years as we've started to have a lot of boutique Blu-ray companies start to move through more and more obscure films that have not received much love at all on video. And we're starting to see a lot of these movies, some of which I was unfamiliar with, but even the ones that I'm familiar with, those are often, the ones I'm familiar with are often the ones that are really kind of revelatory because I have a set thought about what I think of these pictures and I revisit them because it's like, oh, cool, man, I haven't, you know, this is a new way to see this and I've not seen it in a long time. And my revisit to a particular film becomes kind of an eye-opening experience of the type that is shocking. Uh, and this is an instance where it's not as shocking as I, as, as some other instances I could point out, but my God, I really enjoy this film. And okay, for instance, just last night, uh, Beth and I were having dinner with a couple of friends and uh, one of these friends is uh, a, a woman of, of roughly the same age as you and me. And I mentioned that uh, we were going to be talking about Red Sonja. And she, without any prompting whatsoever, immediately just burst forth with, oh, man, I love that movie. I love that film. And I was like, oh, my God, I thought I was going to have to, like, make an argument for why I'm talking about this film on a podcast. And she's like, oh, yeah, 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 I love that movie. This was unexpected. This is in the wild. This is not someone who's like a humongous movie fan. You know, she's she doesn't, you know, she's she she does like movies, but I was just sitting there. I almost wanted to like stand up and go, holy crap, I found one in the wild. Someone who's a huge fan of this film. Holy crap. But that just speaks to the you know, one of the things I've said for years and years, which is that, you know, every film is probably somebody's favorite movie, although there are some movies that I'm pretty sure that is not true of. <laughs> But you, you just never know. And like I say, I, I did not have the experience that you had, which was watching it repeatedly on cable growing up, right? That's not, that's not how I came to this movie. The, the times that I've watched this movie over the years have all stemmed from the enjoyment that I had on a theatrical viewing when it first came out. When it came out and bombed. It, I mean, it cost $18 million to make, and I think it grossed only $7 million. So this was considered a massive flop. That's why there was never a Red Sonja 2, you know. And so what we end up with is what we got. Although you are aware that they're currently shooting a new Red Sonja film, finally. 
I knew that uh, Rodriguez was trying to get one off the ground a while back with Rose McGowan. And that did I, not work out because she got injured. Yeah, they were yeah. they were they were moving down the path, and then she uh, she messed. Up, I think she messed up her leg, and yeah. that that's why that's why that essentially fell apart. No, they're shooting a movie uh, apparently right now, <laughs> fe- featuring an actress that uh, I thought I was completely unaware of, but uh, now that I now that I've taken a look at who she is, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of looking at her and going, man, she would make a good choice. Uh, an actress named Matilda Lutz. Just looking at pictures of her, I'm going, okay, this is a woman who's obviously a quality actor. She's, uh, I think she's 28 right now. Definitely definitely could pull something like this off. And the fact that this is a big budget production, I'm not sure exactly what the budget is, but the fact that it's, I mean, Red Sonja came out, what was it? Are we talking 37 years ago now? Is that what it is? I don't want to think about it because I'm already feeling really old. That's exactly what I just thought, which is, do I really want to take note of exactly how long ago this film came out? Uh, but yeah, uh, Matilda Lutz. Uh, oh, yeah, she was the main actress in Revenge. She will absolutely yeah. make an excellent Sonia yeah. just based on her physicality in that film alone. Yeah, and so I'm thinking, man, this is great, but uh, I, I mean, it shouldn't have taken this long, and it shouldn't have taken you know, like more than 15 years of an incredibly successful series of comic books and miniseries in comic book form for Red Sonja to be taken seriously as a viable cinema project again. But hey, we're going to get another one and I'm pretty happy about that fact. Yeah, I'm definitely interested just in the the casting alone. I think they're doing an excellent job because she is really well at emoting and showing facial expressions or the actions behind what it is that she's doing as evidenced again by her role in revenge. So well, I just, think it's interesting. Just, she's, she's Italian too, which means, which means there's going to be kind of a, uh, I'm not sure. I have to admit that I'm not sure what her voice sounds like, but I, I can't, I can't wait to hear what she sounds like as Sonia. I really can't. Yeah. Even with a heavy accent, it will work just in that world because of the cultures that we were talking about that are all amalgamated together in the films and comic worlds exactly. or these characters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Looking, looking forward to this. But uh, I guess um, to to wrap this up, man, Blu-ray changes everything sometimes, don't it? <laughs> yeah, 4K with HDR specifically. I'm gonna harp on this forever yeah. because this this is the this is the difference, right? Blu-ray is like watching 16 millimeter in the resolution aspect of it, where it's still an amazing picture and it's still terrific. But 4K with HDR is very much like going from 16 millimeter film projection to 35 millimeter where it's that much more resolution. It's that much more visual information that is being played out for you. And the larger screen that you can get for both of those, the better. Um, There's a reason why David Lynch is so angry about people watching films on their phone. (laughs) Yeah, I can't, I I really cannot imagine doing that. I still do not understand Exactly. I mean, what are you are are you simply gleaning the the idea of the story? I mean, it's it's a it's a, it's a very different thing from reading a book on your phone, folks. It's still just words on a page when it's a book. When it's a film, there are many other elements involved. Come on. I I only watch things on my phone if they're things that I've seen a bunch of times before, and it's a way to pass the time and have some entertainment oh, well, while I'm that, trapped that, somewhere. Yeah. yeah. That I that I get, but you know, what are you getting out of Lawrence of Arabia on your phone? Yeah, unless you've already watched it a ton and you're just watching yeah. it because it's comfort food, fine. Get that shit on as big a screen as you possibly can for any film that you truly, truly need to watch because you will thank yourself for it later. The presentation matters way more than people think. It really does. 
I, I agree. I agree. Well, Court, tell the fine people where they can find you and the strange things that you create. <laughs> well, I have an OnlyFans account. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to see pictures of your hairy feet. No. <laughs> you're assuming that they're hobbit feet. And while you're correct, I find that hurtful. <laughs> uh, didn't, didn't mean to be hurtful. Just honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, easiest place to find me. Cinema Psyops podcast, which is legionpodcast.com forward slash cinema dash psyops dash podcast. <sighs> Man, the more the more dashes that get added into that URL, the harder it is to say in one final breath. That's the main landing and launching page for all things having to do with my podcast. Going back to episode one, if you're just going on podcasters, I think it goes back to like episode 63 or 62, somewhere around there, which you're going to miss Rod's first appearance on the show. Oh, yeah. That, that was, yeah. That was that was earlier on than I like to remember. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah, one of the first things that I did when I came out the gate of podcasting was get as many voices out there that people recognized and loved to try and get ears on my show. That's, I brought in as many people as I could. I don't know. I don't know about the loved part, but uh, yeah, apparently I'm I'm becoming semi ubiquitous on, on in certain areas. And so I, I'm not going to complain. At the time that we got you on the show, you were absolutely loved. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to know me is to move away from me yes it's true. <laughs> i don't know if that's necessarily the case but yeah that's the main place to find us uh, i'm on instagram for our meme dumps that i do to try and promote the show and just give people a little thing to smile about um the best place to kind of get a hold of me and converse with me is the legion discord which if you listen to my show there's a link for that as well in the show notes on that so i won't try and drop that url because it's ridiculous just search us out on discord as well for legion podcasts <laughs> Court, thank you once again for coming on to talk to me about what I will once again stress is not a guilty pleasure because I feel no guilt in enjoying this film. Thank you very much. Yeah, if anything, I hope that some folks are going to give Red Sonia another chance and try and get it in this version where they can see it in full HD, if not full 4K with HDR. Yes, yes, indeed. 